Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. People who follow me on social media will know that I've been vocally skeptical about the value of Bitcoin uh, and the blockchain more generally. But I think it would be irrational of me to presume that I, that I know where blockchain technology uh, might go uh, in the coming decades, given that many inventions uh, take a while to find truly uh, useful applications. And I've been uh, very impressed with a handful of people uh, working to develop what blockchains are actually capable of, uh, one of whom, of course, is Vitalik Buterin. I was first struck by Vitalik's candidness and insightfulness uh, when I heard him on the show Conversations with Tyler last year. Um, He's something of a child prodigy, uh, and he's been getting quite a lot of attention through his research and his tweets and his blog posts uh, and various uh, various, uh, technical accomplishments, including obviously creating the cryptocurrency Ethereum uh, back in 2015, uh, which incidentally has made him uh, incredibly rich. It seems to me like he's been making impressive progress uh, in both engineering uh, blockchain systems that might eventually be turned to really useful purposes, uh, and also as a a theorist developing the kind of so-called crypto economics that explains uh, how these systems can actually be robust and and why they might be able to solve problems that other technologies uh, at the moment can't. This conversation is uh, highly related to my episode with the economist Glenn Weil uh, from earlier this year. That's episode 52, uh, Professor Glenn Weil on uprooting capitalism and and democracy for a just society. Vitalik has actually uh, co-authored a number of papers with Glenn and they're collaborators on the Radical Exchange Project, uh, though they have uh, plenty of uh, robust disagreements as well. Um, so if you've already listened to that other episode or want to go back to it first, uh, that's great. But it uh, shouldn't be necessary to make sense of what we're talking about today. To most people, it's a bit confusing why I think this topic of mechanisms for social coordination is of such great importance. Um, and this interview also gets pretty technical uh, pretty fast. Uh, we don't stop, for example, to explain what things like blockchains or quadratic voting or stablecoins uh, actually are. So I'm going to start here by talking for a little while until I think we've set the scene uh, satisfactorily. If you'd rather skip that and just go straight to the interview with Vitalik, uh, you can jump forward to minute 23 of the episode. So for those who don't know, uh, the blockchain is a protocol developed about uh, 10 years ago, which allows for the maintenance of a decentralized ledger, uh, or basically a set of accounts that define who has how much money uh, on this network. Um, Alternatively, uh, it can also be used to kind of transfer tokens that don't have to look like money per se. Uh, For example, a a kind of token on the blockchain could indicate that you own something uh, in the real world. As a lot of people will know, uh, the first example of a blockchain, uh, actually an actual application, uh, was called Bitcoin. In brief, uh, many computers around the world run this uh, Bitcoin software. uh, And these computers kind of build a long series of accounts um, tracking the creation of Bitcoins uh, and their transfer between different people on the network, uh, effectively making it a form of money or a kind of currency. The uh, technology is called a blockchain uh, because what you end up with is uh, an enormous and growing chain uh, of of blocks of transactions, uh, one after another. Each uh, 10 minutes, uh, the Bitcoin network will add a a new block of information that encodes all the transactions that are going on to that network from the previous 10 minutes. Uh, And for a transaction to be added to a block, uh, the owner of an account uh, that has Bitcoins in it needs to use cryptography uh, to sign a message from that address certifying that the owner of, of that uh, money uh, wants it to be moved uh, from that from their Bitcoin address to it to a different one. When a uh, block like that is created, uh, all the computers on the network uh, certify that there are, are enough Bitcoins in, in the addresses of, uh, for that transaction to be included in the block. They uh, all agree on uh, what block to add following kind of predefined rules. Uh, and then having added that block, they, they move on to creating uh, the next one. Uh, And for various reasons, it's uh, impractical to tamper with older blocks. Uh, So once your transaction has been on the network for a while, uh, you can be confident that it will stay there and and no one can can interfere with it. 
Now, everyone can see uh, every transaction on the Bitcoin network. Uh, so though some other um, blockchain protocols have made it possible to send uh, other kinds of cryptocurrencies in a, in a way that is much less public. Now, the computers running this uh, Bitcoin or, or other blockchain software uh, are doing so because they're participating in a competition to add, add blocks to the chain. Um, to get the right to add a block to the chain, uh, you need to solve uh, what's a really difficult uh, math problem, which uh, takes a lot of computing power to, to find the answer to. Uh, and each time someone succeeds, the network uh, will create uh, some new Bitcoins to, to give the person who came up with that solution, effectively uh, paying them for their work there. Now, there's a need to have a lot of processing power uh, on this network uh, dedicated to solving these uh, math problems. Uh, because if someone could, if, if an individual could control more than half of all of the processing power uh, on the network, then they could, uh, in principle, uh, launch an attack that might allow them to spend any Bitcoins that they own uh, more than once, which would obviously uh, violate the, the, the whole purpose of it. Um, and having all of this processing power there uh, to make an attack like that uh, not viable uh, famously uses up a lot of electricity, uh, which is one of the kind of technical problems that Vitalik has been working to fix uh, with, his own, um, with his own cryptocurrency, Ethereum. Bitcoin and other similar networks uh, can process uh, seven transactions uh, between different accounts uh, each second. And this, uh, in principle, allows people to kind of buy and sell goods uh, using, using Bitcoin uh, without having to trust a bank uh, to hold their money or to make the transfer or anything like that. Uh, so even if a, if a bank, say, would refuse to help you buy drugs from a drug dealer, uh, you could use uh, Bitcoin to pay for them. And indeed, uh, illegal transactions like that have uh, been among uh, the most popular uses of, of Bitcoin so far. So it actually functions something like uh, cash on the internet, um, but it also has uh, the weaknesses of some of the weaknesses of cash. Uh, so, for example, if someone just steals uh, cash out of your wallet, then there's uh, not much that you can do to get it back and reverse that uh, transaction. Um, and if you pay for something uh, using cash and then the person never sends you the product, uh, then you're screwed. Now, uh, cryptocurrencies have uh, famously had really extremely unstable exchange rates uh, with the currencies that we're used to using every day, like uh, you know, US dollars. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll triple in value in a day or decline to a third of what they were yesterday. Um, and that's uh, perhaps uh, to be expected because, because their supply is uh, completely invariant uh, to how much people are willing to, to pay to get them. Uh, so if the demand to hold Bitcoins goes up, uh, there's no more Bitcoins get made. Uh, so, the, so the price has to fly up until uh, people want to wanna hold uh, the number that exists. It's also uh, pretty natural because people have no idea uh, how much people are going to want to use uh, Bitcoins in future. Uh, and a lot of people are kind of buying and selling cryptocurrencies, uh, speculating about their future prospects in that way, which is uh, highly uncertain. But this uh, volatility uh, has made them a, a terrible way to store kind of a certain uh, given amount of, of value reliably. Uh, some people are trying to create uh, stable coins, uh, which is kind of a, a cryptocurrency that would uh, have a fairly stable value in terms of uh, US dollars or euros or whatever other uh, normal currency. Of course, it's easy to devalue a cryptocurrency by just having the protocol uh, programmed uh, to make more uh, of that currency if the price gets too high. Uh, but what about preventing its value from falling? Um, that's, that's a whole lot harder. One way to do it uh, is by holding lots of US dollars or other uh, you know, real assets uh, and standing ready to, to buy the stable coin uh, at the price that you want to, uh, to fix it at. But the ideal would be to find a way to make the price stable without having to sit on one US dollar for, for every uh, dollar worth of the cryptocurrency. Um, and pegging currencies like this, uh, as it's called, has a pretty poor historical track record. Um, a lot of countries have tried to make their currencies have a particular value in, in a different currency that they don't control. Uh, and sooner or later, seen, seen their values crash as they haven't been able to, to defend that price. Okay, uh, why might any of this actually matter? Uh, Vitalik and I talk uh, about whether we can get the blockchain to work to run currencies uh, like Bitcoin. Uh, but to be honest, uh, that isn't where I see uh, the most upside, and I don't think uh, Vitalik does either. 
Um, most of us already kind of have access to acceptably, uh, you know, stable uh, currencies and the cost of sending money between people or even between countries, uh, while it can be significant, is nothing crazy and it's not, probably not going to uh, lead to a revolution in economic efficiency uh, by any means. The problems that uh, I'm interested in are kind of coordination problems uh, for humanity. Uh, and the blockchain or other ideas that Vitalik is working on uh, might help humanity kind of work together to, to solve a lot of the, the challenges uh, we share collectively. To help to explain that, uh, kind of many, many problems uh, can, from one point of view, be seen as coordination problems or coordination failures. Uh, this kind of becomes apparent if you study economics and think a lot about market failures uh, in goods that aren't fully private. Uh, but it takes, it takes a particular view to see it. Um, so let, let's, let's run through a, a few examples here. The first one uh, might be that most people would prefer to live in a world where, where others didn't, weren't suffering uh, in horrible poverty, uh, simply because they dislike others having bad lives. Uh, and if they're contributing kind of a small amount of money uh, meant that everyone else did so as well, uh, and that as a result, the problem would be significantly solved, then they'd be happy to, to do so. Inasmuch as uh, billions of people all around the world uh, value uh, extreme poverty being eliminated, uh, a, do a donation that you make uh, to someone who's extremely poor not only benefits uh, that, that recipient, but also benefits kind of everyone else uh, who cares about them, all of those billions of people who uh, have some altruistic preferences. Uh, now, within nations, we have the structures that allow us to coordinate to, to solve this public good issue, the, the public good of not having poverty. Um, and that's one reason that the welfare system uh, exists. Many of us uh, kind of agree and are happy to contribute to the redistribution of money to, to the poor, uh, so long as others then have to do so as well uh, through the tax system. Uh, but there's no similarly kind of powerful voting or coordination mechanism uh, existing at the international level, uh, which greatly reduces how much money uh, can actually get transferred from rich countries to poor countries because uh, you have this uh, collective action problem. A second uh, somewhat related example uh, is that many people think that uh, eating meat uh, isn't ideal and would prefer uh, for animals not to be suffering terribly in agriculture. Uh, and a decent fraction of those uh, would be happy to become vegetarian if uh, meat substitutes were, were nearly as tasty uh, and cheap as, as meat is now. Um, and if, say, 3 billion people could get together and decide to all become vegetarian simultaneously, uh, you can bet that with kind of the massive incentives that there would then be to do R&D and improve uh, vegetarian cooking, uh, we would really uh, quickly invent meat and meal substitutes that were that, were that good. So the problem uh, of animal suffering on, uh, in agriculture uh, could be significantly solved this way in just a few years, um, if, not, if not months maybe. Uh, but there is no good way for so many people to, to get together and, and agree to do that um, so it doesn't happen. And of course, even if they did agree uh, at the beginning, there'd be this incentive for each individual uh, to not stick to the agreement uh, once it's been made, which discourages people from even trying to uh, set it up in the first place. So the problem of animal cruelty, which initially seems to be kind of uh, a very individual issue of people doing something that might be immoral because it benefits them, uh, can also, from one point of view, be kind of seen as a collective action problem. Along uh, similar lines, if we wanted to fund the uh, research and development into green energy, that would uh, really strike a, a decisive blow uh, in the fight to prevent catastrophic climate change. Um, it would probably cost a lot less than even you know, $1,000 per person in the world to do that. And many, many people would be willing to contribute that kind of amount, uh, at least you know, in proportion to their, to their share of global wealth, if, uh, and, and kind of only if doing so meant that everyone else would pitch in as well and that thereby the, the problem would be significantly solved. But again, there's kind of no effective way to create and, and enforce such an agreement between, between billions of people. Uh, and the same is true of funding the, the fixed costs of addressing many other shared problems, uh, like uh, preventing diseases that, that many people suffer from. Uh, very often, those kind of fixed costs take the form of uh, funding scientific research uh, to produce knowledge that we can then uh, all share in uh, the benefits of. 
uh, but can also take kind of the form uh, of maybe a piece of infrastructure that, that might only make sense at a huge scale, like um, a sewer system for a big city. Though these days uh, we do have uh, city governments that uh, have found a way to kind of tax people and, and fund those public goods. I uh, mentioned climate change there, uh, but the, uh, the same applies to um, uh, global catastrophic risks uh, more generally. Uh, so it's in, it's in everyone's interest to ensure that humanity doesn't suffer some terrible catastrophe that ends up harming most of us. Uh, whether that's a, a nuclear war or an asteroid impact or, or a terrible pandemic or, or whatever else. Um, but for me, as, an, as a selfish individual, if I were completely selfish, it would make uh, no sense at all for me to go and work to solve uh, those problems just to extend my own life expectancy because the effect on my life expectancy would be absolutely negligible. Um, that the benefit of any work that you put into uh, pre- preventing global catastrophic risks goes overwhelmingly to other people. Basically, there's, if, if there's 8 billion people, then you only get one, uh, one eight billionth of the benefit. Now, of course, governments to some extent can, can solve all of the problems that I've described above. Um, so the US government as a whole uh, oversees about 5% of the world's population. So it has, in theory, like much more willingness to spend money uh, to prevent um, a global catastrophe than, than any one individual does. Uh, and that's why it can spend uh, billions of dollars kind of identifying and tracking uh, many of the asteroids and comets uh, in, in our solar system. Because collectively, for the U.S. as a whole, uh, that's, that's worth paying for. But there are serious problems there as well, because good collective decision making in the form of government uh, is also a collective good, a public good that suffers from the same kind of under, underlying problems that I've been describing. So, so when each person votes, when each, when each of us votes, kind of 99.99999% of the impact of that vote uh, is on other people in our country or, or in other countries uh, in, in the world. And the, the, the effect that the, uh, the wisdom of our own votes kind of has on us personally is, is basically nothing. So unlike, say, when we're buying a, a private good like a laptop or something for ourselves, uh, the selfish incentive to kind of vote and choose wisely uh, is, is mostly uh, completely absent. Uh, and this leads to a phenomenon known as uh, rational irrationality. Uh, similarly, uh, if you see the government doing something really terrible that affects everyone in the country just a little bit, uh, each person, each individual uh, voter kind of has almost no personal incentives to, to go and make a fuss about it because then they would bear all, this, all the costs but only get a tiny fraction of the benefit. Along the same lines, um, I've discussed on the show uh, like many times before uh, how journalism seems to be just a total dumpster fire. And the underlying reason is, again, uh, the coordination problem known as uh, public goods provision. So, so each reader would be happy to pay a few dollars a month towards um, outstanding journalism if doing so meant that the country was well-informed and well-run. Because, uh, I mean, even the private benefit they'd get from living in a, in a more sane country uh, for just a few dollars would, would easily be worth it. Um, and I actually have a friend who pays $500 a year to get a uh, subscription to the Financial Times, uh, which both of us think is a very unusually thoughtful newspaper. Uh, but he doesn't, doesn't even bother reading a word of it. Uh, he doesn't really want to read the news. Uh, he just funds it because he thinks it's very valuable for society as a whole uh, that the Financial Times exists in general. But he's a very unusual person. Um, it's, it's generally uh, very hard to get people to contribute uh, that much uh, to fund the creation of journalism. Uh, because if I get a subscription to a good newspaper, uh, that doesn't cause anyone else to, to do so as well. So I paid all this money out of my own wallet that kind of uh, barely made a dent on how well uh, the country as a, as a whole is actually governed. So for uh, sensible people who prefer reading uh, fun stuff like celebrity gossip uh, rather than learning about you know, all the tragic and annoying things in the world that actually barely affect them, uh, which, which I think should be most of us, uh, the existence uh, of the Financial Times is, is a public good much more than it is a, a private one. So even if people could uh, only get access to the articles by subscribing, uh, that wouldn't solve uh, the problem uh, of how to fund enough journalism uh, really at all. 
Uh, to sum up, here's uh, just like some of the things that have kind of a major public goods aspect uh, in the economic sense of the phrase public good, um, which is to say that people get the, the benefits of something being provided, even if they don't contribute uh, to creating it at all. The elimination of poverty, uh, not hurting non-human animals, uh, most funding most scientific research, reducing the risks that humanity faces uh, collectively as a species, producing information about what's happening in the world and how, how we might fix those problems, and making uh, smart decisions collectively, whether doing so as cities or, or countries or, or, or as a species as a whole. Okay, so that's uh, a lot. In fact, it's like it kind of is almost everything. And if we could eliminate 1% or 10% of the public goods uh, properties of these problems, uh, that would probably make a really meaningful difference, uh, perhaps you know, transforming the world in, in, in really visible ways. To be clear, I don't want to say that the framework of public and private goods is kind of the only way of conceptualizing uh, what's allowing these problems to, to persist. But, but, but I do think that it's um, quite a powerful one that can give us some insights into, into how, uh, like some ways that we could try to solve them. Okay, so that's a big diversion into why uh, when I see something that might help solve coordination problems and uh, provide public goods, I I get really excited. Uh, But what does that have to do uh, with uh, the conversation with Vitalik? Basically, uh, Vitalik Buterin and and others involved in uh, cryptocurrency economics or or the radical exchange movement um, have been thinking a lot about kind of what new institutions or incentives uh, we might be able to create that would make a dent in this public good provision problem. Uh, and the blockchain might provide new ways uh, for a group of people to set up those institutions uh, somewhat autonomously. Uh, but they're interested in like, other options as well that, that might not involve the blockchain at all. An example of, kind of progress on this problem uh, of providing public goods from the past is the creation of patents. So we took what was mostly a public good at the time, kind of breakthroughs in science and technology, and decided to give people a bit more of an incentive to invest in and, 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 and also to, to publish their discoveries by making it a, a bit more of a private good but by giving them a monopoly on the new insights for some period of time during which they could profit. And I think actually the patent mechanism is kind of overrated today and it has major problems, but it's probably better than having nothing at all. And it was probably a progress at the time that it was first implemented. One other way that you could envisage of getting people to contribute to a public good, a collective good, might be to kind of create a program that runs on a blockchain, which says that if a thousand people each commit $10 worth of a cryptocurrency uh, to fund a newspaper, then the newspaper will get all of that funding, uh, $10,000. But if you don't hit the uh, 1,000-person mark, uh, then it won't. And all of the people who committed uh, that money uh, will will simply get it back. Kickstarter kind of already works as something like this. You can set up uh, fundraising mechanisms of this kind. Uh, but there's a very serious kind of free rider problem there, uh, which is that everyone who's looking at that funding uh, or that, that fundraising effort will kind of rather that other people join the group of 1,000 uh, so that they didn't have to. An advance of a sort on this idea that Vitalik has written about and that we discussed in the episode with Glenn Weil uh, is, is quadratic funding. So basically, let's say that you think it's, it's really useful for society that newspaper X exist uh, and have money uh, to fund its investigative journalism. Uh, but you don't particularly want to read that newspaper yourself. You just want it to exist. With quadratic funding, uh, you could kind of put a small amount of your personal money towards that newspaper, say, you know, $10 again. Uh, And for mathematical reasons, I'll skip over here. Uh, You then take the square root of that private contribution, add it to the square root of everyone else's private contributions to the newspaper, and then uh, square the total. And then the government or some other funding source that's supporting uh, this quadratic uh, funding would then kind of match those public contributions in some proportion uh, to, to that figure. And and the crazy thing is that if the government actually gave uh, exactly that full sum rather than just some fraction of it, then each person would have uh, the selfish incentive to personally contribute an amount that would then collectively fund uh, this public good of the newspaper at the right level to maximize the welfare of society as a whole, which is kind of an, an amazing theoretical result. 
Now, there's serious problems with that model and ways that doesn't uh, match reality. Uh, but, but if the government just gave a, kind of 1% of the resulting sum uh, of those square roots, uh, that could still represent kind of a big step forward uh, in efficient kind of public good provision, at least from where we stand today, where uh, we really just have very kludgy mechanisms. If you had the right pool, uh, the access to the right pool of kind of matching funding, uh, and each individual had a unique identity, uh, then it could be fairly easy to operate a funding scheme uh, just like that on the blockchain. Uh, though you could do it using non-blockchain technology as well, obviously. This is one of kind of a lot of ideas on the drawing board today uh, in this in this intellectual scene that possibly could be transformative if, if we could actually implement them. Um, another another quite wild idea, uh, if we mostly use blockchains to, to run um, transactions and to supply money and to store value, uh, and we could somehow get blockchains to know uh, accurately what was going on in the real world, um, might be for countries to commit really huge sums of money to kind of an escrow program uh, that would only return the money to them if there wasn't a war between those countries. So hypothetically, uh, the US and China could stake uh, $1 trillion at the start of each year, uh, which this blockchain program, uh, whether, which operates according to kind of fixed rules, whether you like it or not, uh, would only return that money at the end of the year if neither country had killed a single soldier of the other country. Now, there's probably like uh, several fatal problems uh, with, with that specific proposal, but it's conceivable that there might be other incentive structures uh, like this, uh, which we could imagine and uh, implement, which uh, could nudge states towards uh, cooperation and, and peace between, uh, between one another, um, which might well be kind of a key determinant of whether the future of humanity goes, goes well or badly. All right, that's probably more than enough from me about why uh, this issue seems to matter so much. Um, I'll link to, uh, to a great and lengthy de- and detailed and entertaining paper, uh, which goes into these issues um, in the show notes. Uh, it's called uh, Recent Developments in Cryptography and Possible Long-Run Consequences, if you'd like to uh, learn more. I don't usually like to talk this much at the start of the show. Uh, we've gone on for quite a while. But some people who listened to this interview uh, thought that it uh, would be maybe a bit unclear of why it matters uh, without a monologue like this. So without further ado, here's Vitalik Buterin. Today, I'm speaking with Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik was born near Moscow and lived there until the age of six when his parents migrated to Canada. He was quickly placed in a class for gifted children and attended the Abelard School, a private high school in Toronto, which he said proved to be among the most interesting and productive years of my life. He learned about Bitcoin from his computer scientist father in 2011 when he was 17 and soon after founded Bitcoin Magazine and became an ongoing contributor on blockchain-related issues on Twitter and his website vitalik.ca. In 2013, he visited blockchain developers around the world and returned to Toronto to publish a white paper proposing the Ethereum blockchain system. He started attending the University of Waterloo, but dropped out in 2014 when he received a Teal Fellowship of $100,000 and went to work on developing Ethereum full-time. Ethereum offered the potential to write programs that would automatically execute and distribute the Ether currency according to pre-specified rules, allowing so-called smart contracts or decentralized applications. It launched in mid-2015 and became a sensation uh, in the blockchain world. At the height of the cryptocurrency bubble in late 2017, the value of all the Ethereum currency in the world reached a massive $125 billion, although that figure is now back down to $25 billion or so. Since then, he has continued to work on development of the open-source Ethereum program uh, through the nonprofit Ethereum Foundation. In the last year, uh, he's gotten involved with the Radical Exchange Project discussed in my interview with Glenn Weil, uh, being a co-author of the paper Liberal Radicalism, Formal Rules for a Society Neutral Among Communities. He's donated to the Machine Intelligence Research Institute to fund AI safety research, the SENS Research Foundation to support anti-aging research, and give directly to fund cash transfers to the world's poorest people. Thanks for coming on the program, uh, Vitalik. 
Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. I hope to talk about your views on uh, long-termism, uh, how to improve the world, and how to better coordinate humanity. Uh, but first, what exactly are you spending your time on at the moment, and why do you think it's uh, very important work? Uh, sure. Uh, so, I mean, most people know me as uh, the Ethereum person, and and I do spend a lot of time working on Ethereum. So, the biggest thing in Ethereum land right now is uh, Ethereum 2.0, which is this uh, kind of big multi-year-long upgrade that we've been working on to try to massively increase the blockchain's uh, scalability uh, with uh, sharding, uh, massive uh, increase in security with proof of stake, and uh, improve its programmability, uh, change a whole bunch of technical things that we felt that we got wrong the first time. So that's been kind of the big thing that's um, excited a lot of us for years, but now it's uh, finally coming to fruition. There's these uh, big teams um, around the world that are of working on not just thinking about um, what the protocols in Ethereum 2.0 should look like, but actually implementing it. So the first uh, kind of phase of Ethereum 2.0, which is the proof of stake, is going to probably come out very early next year. There's some already test networks. Um, there's starting to kind of link different clients together and make kind of different uh, implementations written by different teams talk to each other. So. A lot of really exciting stuff there, and uh, yeah, and I think I've said publicly a lot of times that I you know, believe in the potential of blockchain technology. But on the other hand, uh, and of blockchains as they currently exist are, you know, in many ways a joke, right? Like 15 transactions a second, like not going to run the world economy on top of that, and all of those things. And then uh, the kind of insanely gas guzzling proof of work that I've uh, criticized many times as well. So. Yeah, I'm definitely just really excited about turning Ethereum into a yeah, system that we can kind of really fully be kind of proud of and and expected to kind of push ahead and actually become useful for a lot more things. We'll talk about some of those uh, criticisms of uh, yeah blockchain technology as it stands today in, in in just a second. I guess it, it sounds like you're you've managed to carve out time to actually work on uh, or to continue working on a lot of the technical sides of things and not get kind of bogged down in the politics or perhaps like the uh, yeah the, the funding or bureaucratic aspect of actually you know I guess there's like organizations built up around Ethereum and blockchain now, which I could imagine just absorbing all of your time on management. Yeah, I mean the Ethereum organization is definitely interesting and weird because I mean first of all it's definitely not like a conventional company. Like we don't really have like bosses that kind of hand orders from the top down to the entire structure. I mean we have teams and teams have leaders, but the way that the teams and the people inside of them kind of communicate with each other is this fairly unique thing that we've just had to learn and figure out over the, cor the course of the last couple of years. And, and a big part of that does mean that the teams that are working on the different parts of the protocol just have a lot of autonomy to them, which is also good for the people running the Ethereum Foundation because it means less work there. But I mean, there is still a lot of technical coordinating work that needs to be done. And the other good news is that I'm like, I'm not the only one that's uh, doing it. So we have a lot of wonderful people like uh, Danny Ryan from uh, the research team who deserves uh, a huge amount of credit for the work that he has been uh, doing, you know, talking to the different development teams and uh, getting them to uh, coordinate together more. 
So I guess to, to give some structure to, to the conversation today, I, I think um, first first we get, we're going to talk about kind of the blockchain and and yeah our crypto technology as it, as it stands today and, and and how that's working out, and then uh, we'll move on to talking about uh, like potential future applications for, for blockchain technology and how it could potentially end up having a having a big uh, positive impact or, or perhaps not, and then we'll talk uh, talk later on I guess about long termism and existential risks and effective altruism and things like that. Okay, we're going to spend uh, maybe the first uh, 40 minutes or so here uh, discussing current issues uh, in the blockchain community and uh, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. Uh, so if you have no interest in that, uh, then I recommend uh, skipping forward maybe about 40 minutes from here when we'll get to uh, more general issues. So I guess for this interview, I'm, I'm, I'm in the slightly awkward position, I guess, of being a huge fan of, uh, of you and your writing and, and all of your research. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical, I guess, of blockchain technology, uh, maybe relative to, to a lot of people who, who might interview you, at least uh, in terms of the, what, what it's managed to accomplish so far. Though I suppose uh, it sounds like you're perhaps even, even more skeptical of its accomplishments so far than, than, than what I thought. But that, yeah, all of that said, I have kind of no idea uh, how, how useful it could turn out to be in, in the future, which is um, one of the reasons I'm very keen to have this conversation to try to see um, whether it could potentially uh, yeah, accomplish a lot more good uh, going forward. So yeah, if I, if I can start with a skeptical quote from the cryptographic expert Bruce Schneier, uh, who I imagine uh, you're aware of, who wrote this in uh, Wired in February. Do you need a public blockchain? The answer is almost certainly no. Uh, a blockchain probably doesn't solve the security problems you think it solves. The security problems it solves are probably not the ones you have. Manipulating audit data is probably not your major security risk. A false trust in blockchain can itself be a security risk, and the inefficiencies, especially in scaling, are probably not worth it. I've looked at many blockchain applications, and all of them could achieve the same security properties without using blockchain. Uh, of course, then they wouldn't have the cool blockchain name, though. Honestly, cryptocurrencies are useless. They're only used by speculators looking for quick riches, people who don't like government-backed currencies, and criminals who want a black market way to exchange money. Yeah, so your, your collaborator, Glenn Weil, is also pretty skeptical of blockchains, as you mentioned when I interviewed him a couple of months ago, and you've been uh, admirably candid about what they kind of can and can't do so far. So to me, kind of like, like Bruce, it seems like so far that the main application for blockchains has been to facilitate illegal activities like tax evasion or avoidance of capital controls or, or selling drugs, which may or may not be good, but it's kind of not going to transform the economy. So in terms of what it's useful for now, yeah, what, 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 what kind of functions could, can it deliver for me that I, that I can't get some other way through like, you know, saving my investments in, in a bank account or, or in equities or, you know, transacting using my credit card? Is there anything? Yeah, so I guess and I probably want to break my answer up into a few parts. So the first part is kind of the good that blockchains have done today, which I would say is realistically pretty much entirely cryptocurrency, right? Like blockchains minus cryptocurrency are... Uh, themselves a big sector that I'm very excited about, but like being realistic, there has been very little kind of actual deployments of blockchain applications outside of cryptocurrency so far. And I do think that's going to change and that is starting to change. So like, for example, in Singapore, there's this thing called open certs, which is basically using blockchains to verify that certificates like university degrees haven't been revoked yet. And they've managed get like partnerships with a lot of universities and different institutional entities. So there's things like that, but like in the short, like in the kind of now and in the past, like cryptocurrency has definitely been the biggest impact. And like, it's definitely had kind of both good and bad uh, consequences. So, I mean, on the bad side, there's obviously like kind of hacks and thefts and ransomware and all the things that people already talk about. And on the good side, I think people do underestimate the extents to which it's like actually helped people by making it easier to move money around. So like, for example, I visited Africa um, two months ago, 
and there was, uh, there was there some hackathon in Cape Town, and I talked to one of the uh, local um, African uh, community members. This was um, a guy from uh, Nigeria, and I asked him, like, what do people use blockchains for today? And his answer is actually kind of pretty simple. It's just there's a bunch of people here in Africa that are working remotely as software developers or something else for companies in first world countries, and they need to have a way to bring that money back to their homes so they can like, feed their families and live where they are. And um, the nice thing with cryptocurrency is that it's actually a, a lot cheaper than uh, many traditional channels, including things like remittance companies. And sometimes people try to measure this and they say, oh, well, these like coin remittance companies are going nowhere. The sector is tiny. But like the nice thing about cryptocurrency right, is that it's, about decentralization and like you don't need a free remittance company to do remittance. You just take the money, turn the money into Bitcoin, then sell the Bitcoin or, or Ether or whatever, sell it on a local exchange and you're done, you have it, right? So it kind of acts as this global layer that basically says, instead of needing to have institutions that operate both in say North America and Africa, you have one class of institutions that operates in North America, lets you move convert money over to over to cryptos. Then you have another class of institutions that operates over in Africa that acts as local exchanges. And apparently the local exchange situation is actually pretty good there. Then you sell the currency and the, you know you get the money. So there is definitely genuine value in like just pretty simple and dumb things like that. And then otherwise in I mean, you definitely correctly identified that kind of censorship resistance flavored things are another kind of category of usage that just naturally attra um, is attracted to this sort of thing because that's a, a, a big property that the technology has. And I mean, there's downsides to that, but then I mean, there's also upsides to that as well. And especially as we enter into this kind of less favorable geopolitical environment where you're going to have a lot of actors trying to restrict people's ability to do things with each other for reasons that have more to do with a zero sum competition, making humanity better, cough, cough, trade wars and all that. So it's, um, I definitely agree it's a complicated issue. But the second part of this um, question is kind of blockchains in the future. And blockchains in the future, like the big thing that I think will make uh, blockchains in the future more interesting is basically if we manage to actually solve a lot of the big problems that make them hard to use today, right? Where scalability is probably the big one. And because 15 transactions a second is like basically nothing. And if you want to run global economies, they need to go into the tens of thousands of uh, transactions a second. And if the 2.0 with sharding is hopefully going to let you do that, which is nice and hopefully will provide enough capacity that people can actually run a lot of interesting things on top of it. Uh, just quickly, uh, sharding is a technical effort to try to break the blockchain into lots of different threads that would each operate and uh, process transactions uh, separately. Though then, of course, they would have to talk to one another to uh, resolve transactions between them. Uh, it's kind of an attempt to yeah, increase the throughput uh, of, the, of the network, allow it to process more transactions uh, without having uh, some one single database that just becomes un unmanageably large. Okay, back to the show. Also, uh, solutions to privacy. Another thing is solutions to security. So like one of the negative consequences of uh, this is just all these cryptocurrency thefts that keep on happening where, you know, another day, another 34 million gone from an exchange. 
And the nice thing about that problem is that it's one of those problems that I also do think that with better technology, we can uh, kind of mitigate over time. So with a lot of those things uh, being improved, I expect that, uh, first of all, a lot of these non-financial applications. So like, as I mentioned, this uh, certificate uh, kind of verification project um, is quite interesting and promising. Just the stuff involving kind of replacing things like online um, identities and like HTTPS and all of these things with more secure and more decentralized alternatives. Like blockchains are a big part of that. So I guess the way that I view blockchains in non-financial context technologically, right, is that with uh, traditional cryptography, you can prove to someone that you did something, but with a blockchain and not with cryptography, you can prove to someone that you did not do something. Or so you can prove to someone that you have some certificate which did not get revoked. Or you can prove that you know you did some computation that included the outputs of everyone who submitted an in, in input and you didn't censor people. So one um, interesting application I wanted to highlight here is um, there's, um, I published this uh, post on uh, ETH Research, our kind of research sort of forum where we, um, I had talked about the possibility of using blockchains to do a kind of collusion resistant mechanism design infrastructure. And we'll talk about what that means a bit later, but kind of for now, think of it as just secure online voting. And I mean, online voting right now is like notoriously insecure for a bunch of reasons. But one of the reasons why is that there's, it's just hard to secure because there's all these different, different requirements to it. And so I came up with this design where you combine together the properties of a blockchain, which basically gives you a kind of non-censorship guarantee. It says what the result is. You can prove that the result actually is the result taking into account everyone's votes. And so the authority didn't uh, kind of just decide not to include some people's votes to get encryption for privacy uh, to get um, and or and of coercion resistance, which has this strong level of privacy that says you can't prove to other people how you participated even if you want to, which is really important for voting to prevent things like vote selling. Um, and uh, together with uh, zero knowledge proofs, which allow uh, you to prove that the uh, kind of tallying authority actually computed the results correctly, um, despite all of the votes being private. Right. So like you actually need to combine these three components together and a blockchain is one of them. And if you treat a blockchain as this kind of cryptographic tool, then you can create these different kinds of systems and they potentially would allow us to actually design these different gadgets that incorporate uh, different kinds of mechanism design into our lives in a way that's hopefully actually secure and not going to break. Okay, let's just back up a second. So I guess um, me, me and maybe other listeners who know a bit about blockchain, but, but not that much, uh, might be familiar with, yeah, a couple of issues that, that, there are, that there are. You mentioned the, the security problem. So it's like Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies getting stolen a lot. Then there's this issue of lots of electricity being used up in order to secure the network, which I guess that's because you have like a, a proof of work um, method of securing it. And uh, I guess the hope is to move on to a proof of stake, which doesn't require all the computation. Okay, so proof of work, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show, is a system where you protect and run the network um, using different computers that each uh, contribute kind of processing power in order to, to protect it from, from attacks. And it has this issue that uh, running all of those computers uses a lot of electricity and, and uh, incurs a lot of expense. 
By contrast, uh, proof of stake is this attempt to, to get around that, where rather than uh, protect the network by putting up processing power, instead people would kind of stake the, the amount of the cryptocurrency uh, that the network is running and be randomly rewarded uh, in proportion to the amount of uh, currency that they effectively uh, stake as part of uh, building the next block. And then there's this issue of the kind of bottleneck on the, on the number of transactions, uh, which you mentioned you're, you're hoping to, to solve with um, sharding, which I guess is something like breaking up the blockchain into like many different streams that each can process that, that number of transactions and then they kind of interact between one another sometimes. How confident are you that kind of each of those technical problems can, can actually be solved? Are you kind of like sure that, sure that ultimately we'll come up with a, with a technical solution or is it kind of still an open question? Yeah, so proof of stake, uh, very confident. Uh, and so we actually had a spec freeze of uh, phase zero of Ethereum 2.0, which is basically the proof of stake part a couple of weeks ago. The spec is theoretically frozen and the only thing that can change it is if people discover security bugs. But the fundamental concept of proof of stake and the basic details of how the design works is something that's been thought about for years and we've figured out everything that we that we could figure out kind of in theory and things have been fine. Now, then there's also proof of stake in practice. And with proof of stake in practice, I guess the main things that worry me are basically just how the kind of incentives in the protocol interact with uh, the real world. So things like, for example, are people just going to be lazy and run all their staking nodes on AWS? Are people going to lazier and just do all their staking in by um, sending their money to Binance and Binance is going to stake for everyone? Are people going to stake in ways that are insecure and lead to a bunch of people getting hacked at the same time? Like how decentralized is it actually going to be? Are things like bribe attacks against validators realistic? All of these different issues that have to do with the kind of finer points of how incentives defined in the protocol interact with human motivations. That's probably the most uncertain thing. I mean, the good news is that it, some of the uncertainty is starting to be resolved already. So, I mean, we're the first uh, kind of proof of uh, stake chain of uh, the class of proof of stake that we're doing to launch. So Cosmos uh, launched a couple of months ago and Cosmos has like these penalization slashing mechanisms. They have rewards, they have all of these things and they've already been having some issues and I mean, that's been interesting because it both validates the concept and the couple of times that they've had problems that even validated some of the design decisions. So I mean, great project, wish them well, and, and uh, it's been, I mean, feel like we've learned uh, quite a bit from that already. And of course, when Ethereum 2.0 launches, we're taking this kind of multi-pronged strategy where we first launch proof of stake, then we, you know, let it kind of run for a bit, prove itself, and then do sharding. I feel very confident about these things in theory, but uh, in practice, it's like I'm not expecting zero to one flavored kind of problems. I'm expecting sort of one to n flavored problems, if you know what I mean. Like just 15 different edge cases that we just have to think about that all leads to kind of small bugs that are fixable every time, but that just do end up becoming problems. So in the case of sharding, like just a peer-to-peer network that can handle like many megabytes a second passing through it and that ensures all the data reaches everyone um, everyone who needs it within a few seconds. Like there's just things that we're doing that haven't really been done before. And also uh, um, how that would interact with potentially powerful actors trying to attack it, like all these different uncertainties. So 
I definitely think that they exist, but they're in more the sort of thing that we just have to kind of cross when we get to it rather than showstoppers. And I, I definitely, at this point, I'm, I'm definitely pretty confident that there aren't showstoppers. Uh, do you want to comment on the kind of computer security or, or theft uh, issue? Or like wh- whether, you th- whether you think we'll be able to, to, to fix that one well enough? Sure. Yeah. So there's probably three kind of sub problems in computer security and theft in the crypto space. One of them is people giving their money to central authorities that screw it up. So like Mailbox getting hacked and all these other exchanges. The second is people keeping money in their own wallets and that getting hacked. And the third is putting their money into smart contracts and those contracts getting hacked. So for the first, and it definitely keeps being a concern. And the idealist in me um, wishes um, centralized exchanges would go away and we'd be, be able to entirely use decentralized ones for everything except uh, just interfacing with the banking system. And there's still the question of like how close to that dream we can get reality to be. The technology behind decentralized exchanges has improved a huge amount um, over the last 12 months. And there's even things like Uniswap running that are decent- fully decentralized, but that have even better UX than the centralized stuff. So there's reasons to be optimistic, but then I think cross-chain, like between Ethereum and other blockchains, is the one area that the decentralized exchanges haven't really had, um, gotten a good handle at. So technologically speaking, there's been a lot of uh, work on trying to come up with these designs that don't require central exchanges to keep custody of a huge amount of money, which is good. But at least the second problem, which is if you have custody over coins, then what if like your phone gets hacked, your laptop gets hacked, you lose your phone, you lose your laptop and all of those things. So pretty much ever since I entered the space back in like 2011, I've been a um, huge enthusiast for multisig, which basically is instead of um, having one uh, key that controls the coins, the coins are basically controlled by a program and the program says, if two out of three keys or three out of five keys um, do like, sign a message, then those coins can be moved somewhere. And sometimes you can even have more complicated hybrid policies. So like, for example, the Ethereum Foundation uh, wallet has a policy that says that we have seven keys. And um, if you want to send less than 1,000 Ether a day, then one of seven is enough. But if you want to send more than 1,000 Ether, then you need to uh, get together four of the seven. And that's served us pretty well. So like basically I want multi-sig to get adopted by just everyone, individuals, organizations. But then the problem is usability, right? Like for like who are your counterparties? What's the format? So I've been an evangelist for this thing called a social key recovery, which basically said like you have an account and you have one master key that can do things, but then you also specify some set of other keys. And these other keys would generally just be like your friends. And the idea is that any majority of those keys could come together and switch your master key to something else. Um, And so if you lose your master key, they could recover it. If your master key gets stolen, then like the idea is that you would store most of your money in like a savings wallet that would enforce like a one day delay before you can take money out. And so you could get your friends together within the day, they can switch the key and cancel it. And it's a security model that does exist in the real world already. So like, for example, WeChat uses it for account recovery. So I definitely want to see more experimentation and social key recovery. And then first for the third problem, which is smart contracts, like formal verification, I'm obviously excited about. But then the other thing is that we just have to be kind of humble and realistic about 
the kinds of things that we can expect to be smart contractified. And we want like four or 5,000 line contracts and more 50 line contracts. And like one of the reasons I'm a big fan of Uniswap is that the design is so simple. Like it basically is a 50 line contract. Like in practice, it's 200, but most of those are just line convenience functions. Like you can get away with 50. So, so it sounds like if we manage to solve all of those problems that this, we're kind of still pursuing the dream of cryptocurrency being a medium of exchange where people might like, engage in lots of like everyday transactions uh, using cryptocurrency, which which so far has been something that has been like, I mean, people are using it for remittances and like uh, cases where it's uh, you're like transacting between people, people where there's like the banking systems aren't very well integrated or people are kind of unbanked. Uh, but but I guess if you can solve all these problems, then it might be possible for someone like me to actually like want to use cryptocurrency to, to, to buy things on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I definitely think the quality of uh, of uh, blockchain technology can get there. And like not just cryptocurrencies, like also non-financial things. So even things like self-sovereign identities. So like basically having something that you can use to sign in to just regular web services that doesn't depend on Google or Facebook. So why, why do you think people like uh, like Schneier are so vitriolically negative? Do you think they just aren't quite that they're not uh, seeing like the technical advances that that you think are, are likely to come eventually? I think first of all, it's important to stress that they have valid points. Like proof of work sucks. Um, blockchains as they currently exist are unscalable. A bunch of the security issues haven't been solved. So um, it's important to be honest about those things, but. It's definitely, I think, also the case that a lot of those pe- people who are kind of famously bearish on blockchains aren't following kind of the space as it's going to be in five years and so the newer developments that have been happening there. And I think there really are a lot of things coming down the pipeline that really can uh, solve a lot of the problems. Like, definitely not literally all the problems, right? Like. I think users protect their own money in their own accounts isn't going to like solve ransomware, for example. But like if we at least start with the problems we can solve easily, right? Well, like if we can at least start with uh, using blog, crypto and blockchain technology itself to deal with things like user account and exchange theft, then that's a pretty big start already. And for the other things, I'm, I'm sure they can be figured out over time. Uh, are there any kind of problems uh, or applications for um, uh, cryptocurrencies or yeah blockchain technology that, that people talk about, uh, which you think is just like ina- like yeah bad bad applications of it, where whether where it's not the right solution? Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of things. First of all, there's like these applications that just say, "Let me put these entire really big files in like 2.6 megabyte PDFs on the blockchain," and I think even with sharding, that's just going to be crazy expensive and not very pointful, especially when you can just like stick the hash of the file instead. Also, um, things like using blockchains to uh, just store messages that don't have any kind of value components to them that just don't really need this property of being verified by a large group of computers at the same, um, at the same time. Like there's a lot of people that just use blockchains either just inefficiently or uh, way more than they need to. So there's definitely quite a lot of that. I mean, there's blockchain applications that people do that I think are stupid regardless of um, whether or not they're on the blockchain. And even just the ideas behind a large portion of ICOs right now just don't make any sense at all. And so there's definitely a lot of things that I can argue against and uh, kind of often pretty publicly. 
yeah, some applications that I've heard that seem strange to me or kind of, I guess, voting where it seems like kind of pen and paper, at least for like national elections, is, is a lot more trustworthy than anything on, on computers, at least for me. Yeah, like, as I mentioned, like, you can use blockchains to make voting better, but like, you have to really think hard about how you're doing it. And if you're just throwing votes on chain, that's like counterproductive. Like, if you do that, then someone can make a smart contract that just says, if you vote for the purple party, I'll give you 0.01 ETH, and then you're just going to get a bunch of votes for the purple party, and like, guess who's running America in 2020, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess what's another people have talked about it as using it as like uh, auditing kind of supply chains to make sure that products came from particular places, which kind of it just seemed like it was solving the wrong problem with that one where it's like the, the issue is like fraud along the line where people can just put lies in the blockchain, right? Yeah, so this is one example of a, a problem that people sometimes think blockchain solve, but really they don't solve, which is an Oracle problem, right? Like people often have this background impression that blockchains are this technology that provides trust. Hmm. <laughs> in <laughs> uh, the reality is that they provide a specific kind of trust for uh, a specific um, kind of claims and a blockchain has no idea whether the temperature in Toronto is 10 degrees or 20 degrees or 80,000 degrees um, it has no idea whether the thing you just shipped me in the mail is a real phone or a fake phone or a real phone that's um, second hand and is um, going to break in two months um, a blockchain has no idea what the price of uh, a re real world uh, currencies are and like so on and so forth. And there's this big long list, right? And so a lot of blockchain applications like basically do require either combining together blockchains with you know, other data sources and using a blockchain more as this kind of place where the different things get put together and organized or Sometimes the data is just so subjective that like it doesn't really make sense at all. Like for fire insurance, for example, like what are you going to do there? The problem is evaluating what the level of damage is from fire, and that's like incredibly subjective. And there's no way a smart contract is going to help. Yeah, and another application that seemed odd to me was people talking about using the blockchain to kind of get more autonomy over like the kind of the data that online services like Facebook and you know other websites kind of hold about you. I don't understand how it would function as kind of a data storage system because it seems like anything you put on there is getting duplicated so many times that the cost it becomes like becomes enormous. And, and is there something that I'm totally missing there? There is a version of that which actually makes sense, and the version of that which makes sense is that you have services where the data is kept client side by default, but then like people attest to the data, and there's kind of zero knowledge proofs over the data. And then if you want to sell the data, you can use kind uh, of cryptographic protocols that basically say, I'll give you the data or I'll let you compute one particular function over the data if you pay me some number of coins. And then for that to work, like you can kind of piece together like cryptocurrencies and, blo and blockchain hash commitments and zero knowledge multi-party computation. But for something like that to work, like that's a pretty serious challenge. Like you're not just going to show up hashes of stuff on the chain and sell it. Don't those kind of zero knowledge proofs require a lot of computation power or have I misunderstood that? Um, they do. And that's definitely one of the biggest uh, kind of downsides of uh, them right now. But one of the really nice side effects that blockchains um, have is that they're basically leading to a huge amount of money being pumped into making these zero knowledge proof protocols work better. And so, like, back in 2013, there were a couple of academics working on these things in the shadows, but now you have, like, 20 different protocols, and there's dozens of engineers trying to figure out how to cut the proving times down, 
um, in some cases, working on using ASICs to cut proving time down, um, trying to cut down the sizes of the proofs and verification times. So there's definitely a lot of work being done there that can make things possible in a few years that weren't possible a few years ago. What do you think are the most widely held but incorrect beliefs in the, in the crypto community as a whole? Ooh, that's interesting. And the crypto community isn't really a unified thing, and there's definitely kind of different subtribes inside of the crypto community. And I think different subtribes have uh, different misconceptions. Like on the Bitcoin side, for example, there's this idea that 2% inflation is this thing that's wrecking the economy, and the next big step to turn humanity into a uh, type 1 civilization that roams the stars is to uh, get rid of existing fiat currencies and replace them all with this 21 million fixed supply kind of thing. I think that's crazy. On the um, side of uh, things like EOS and uh, kind of Tron and these more kind of semi-centralized uh, projects, I think uh, they have this belief that basically says like, oh, these blockchains are not super decentralized anyway, and so we're just going to be even more centralized, and 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 so we're going to get more efficiency without getting any of the downsides. But I think they don't really realize uh, kind of some of the more subtle benefits um, that uh, decentralization gets you, and I think a lot of those things are going to come out like if political environments become less favorable. And on the side of um, and things like uh, people trying to use blockchains for, well, it depends on the use case, right? Like if, it, if it's payments, I mean, then and there is just the fact that like number one existing payment systems work in a lot of contexts, but, uh, but existing payment systems also don't, don't work well in a lot of contexts. And kind of seeing both sides of that is like, I, I see a lot of people are kind of making a mistake one way or the other, where they think that like either cryptocurrencies are going to completely overtake Venmo, or they think that there's no room for them at all. Ooh, here's an interesting one, actually. I think a lot of people in the uh, censorship resistance space in general, so like both people in the blockchain space that care about censorship resistance as a topic and people outside of it, they tend to kind of not have very good models of politics. Basically, um, like a lot of people have this mindset that says, we're going to create this thing and it's going to uh, just on its own completely be able to overpower governments and they're not going to be able to do anything about it. And it's just going to turn the world into a crypto anarchy and that'll be great. And I think uh, they underestimate the power that governments do have, right? So, you know, you look at things like uh, the Great Firewall, like uh, different uh, countries' attempts at uh, enforcing copyright against uh, copyright infringements on the internet, crackdowns on uh, the sex industry, and a lot of these different uh, kinds of censorship. Like, there are many cases in which governments try much less hard than they could if they really wanted to. And so, you know, you have these restrictions, then you have people using technology to get around these restrictions, but then you have countermeasures against those uh, technologies, and you have countermeasures against the countermeasures, but the parties on uh, both sides, and particularly on the government side, are limited by much more than technological constraints, right? They're also limited by their uh, populations, uh, 
opinions on basically whether or not these restrictions are just, uh, they're limited by enforcement costs, uh, they're limited by social costs, um, shelling fences, like if we allow this, would that lead to allowing this other thing? Can we ban this without risking banning other things? And all of these uh, different complexities. And if you're building censorship-resistant uh, software, then you're not just playing this kind of great battle of technology versus the state. You're also really interacting with these complicated political equilibria. And what does that mean? Well, the answers to those questions are really, really complicated and specific. It's not any sort of single answer. It's uh, a category of uh, questions that I think you could get some good answers out of if you think more about do you think it's possible in principle to create a pegged stablecoin that's that's not actually backed one for one by by the asset that it's meant to be tethered to? I guess from from an, both from a like technological standpoint, but but maybe also from an from an economics uh, standpoint. Yeah, and MakerDAO is definitely trying. I mean, I think uh, it's not possible to make one with a risk of zero, but I think it's possible to make one with a risk that's low enough. But then the problem is that if you make one with a risk that's low enough, then you have these capital inefficiencies, right? Like basically it needs to have it be kind of double or triple collateralized with Ether or with other cryptocurrencies. And then there is some um, of the problem of uh, like how secure is it actually? And the problem is that because the whole thing is, uh, the whole risk model is about tail risks, you don't really know. Yeah, and it gets uh, really complicated. And like a lot of people, I think, measure this sort of incorrectly. Like they say things like, oh, the price of DAI went down to 0.92 for like 20 minutes today. That means the thing is not stable. But like, no, that's exactly the wrong thing to measure, right? Like things that stay at exactly $1, like almost flawlessly until one day they don't, are like exactly sort of fake stability that Nassim Taleb likes to criticize. So like the thing that you're trying to optimize for isn't like lack of tiny day-to-day movements. That's minimizing probability that the thing just suddenly one day does something catastrophic. And yeah, I mean, the problem is that it gets hard to estimate the probability of catastrophic things. And I definitely think that cryptocurrency is interesting because it does create this environment where like, if you can profit from attacking one of these things that you can and someone will. And like, so far, it's definitely looking kind of very soft promising, but we'll see. Yeah, so, so the basic problem there is that uh, kind of the less collateral you have, uh, then the more you're, you're at risk of someone prompting, like trying to ha- do a run on the currency and breaking the peg. Whereas, and, and, but then the more capital you have to have, the more expensive it is to establish the thing. And then like, what's the business model here? Is that, yep. is that basically it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's uh, ever going to be a way to uh, kind of reduce the bad illegal uses of cryptocurrency without preventing the, the, the good uses other than like traditional law enforcement? Or is, or is that just uh, not going to be possible? As I mentioned, I think there's like a few specific categories of bad uses that you can prevent because people have the incentive to prevent it, which is basically like stolen funds. And I mean, stolen funds definitely have a lot of kind of bad knock-on effects. So, for example, you have the North Korean government and there's people claiming that the North Korean government is uh, figuring out how to steal crypto and uh, those funds are potentially being used to fund their nuclear program or other unsavory things. And uh, if they didn't have those funds, then some of those uh, unsavory programs could end up proceeding more slowly or or not proceeding. And so if you can solve the problem of theft in general, then you can also 
reduce the pro problems that come with criminal organizations having more money. So there's some things that you can do. There's definitely other things that you just can't uh, do, basically except by kind of increasing surveillance on something other than and the, the blockchain system itself. So like one example of this, right, is that like people sometimes say that, oh, like, and like both of the proponents and the detractors sometimes say, oh, a cryptocurrency is going to lead to making it impossible to collect taxes. And I think that's crazy because people get caught uh, for cheating on their taxes in a bunch of different ways all the time, right? Like if you're a millionaire, then you, um, sometimes get caught because you registered an income of uh, $23,000, but you have uh, two big swimming, po swimming pools in your backyard. So things like that. Another example is that you could even potentially use crypto technology to help make kind of tax um, enforcement systems that are better. So for example, use your knowledge proofs to collect sales taxes without the government having to have knowledge of um, every single transaction and um, things like that. There's things that, that you can uh, do there. Yeah, and so uh, in, basically, I think in some cases, the answer is definitely yes, there's uh, you know, a bunch of uh, different ways to mitigate it. And in some cases, there's definitely you know, things that just genuinely can't be. Why do you think we don't see kind of more of a, of a crypto-driven crime wave? I remember back in 2013 and 14, I was kind of worried that uh, like Bitcoin could potentially be used to create kind of you know uh, markets for assassinations or like other other illegal behavior. But it seems like that basically hasn't happened at all. Uh, do, do, do you have a theory for that? Or they could otherwise kind of help um, organized criminal organizations? Yeah. Sure, and I have a couple of theories. And so one of them is that I think people underestimate the difficulty of successfully running a kind of anonymous uh, kind of Tim May cypherpunk style um, illegal organization. Like, because these days, right, like you can get de-anonymized in so many ways from the time zones that you log on and make posts, from like text analysis based off of what you write, from uh, just the ways that you make that you make orders for like ser uh, servers, uh, the ways that you uh, log into the inter internet. So like people just make a, a lot of these mistakes, and so it's like it's really difficult to avoid all of them. Like even if you're a tech, if you're a kind of tech technically skilled person, you can try. Like if if that sort of thing became like um, something I was interested in, then I'd probably. I would probably resort to crazy tricks like uh, writing um, all of my uh, forum posts in French and then shoving them through Google Translate just to throw off the text analyzers. But it's 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 really hard to stay anonymous. So it's like it's hard to pat to patch every hole. Yeah, I mean it's it's really hard. And the interesting thing is that there's also kind of diseconomies of scale. Like if you want to do it at the scale of five to ten people, you generally can and you can get away with it because these uh, law enforcement bodies, like as scary as they seem, are often quite under resourced. But then if you go up to 100,000 people, then like, eventually you get figured out. So I think there's that. And also, I think um, people underestimate the extent to which this, the online software industry in general kind of relies on just goodwill and people being willing to volunteer their time out of passion. And so like, they're just aren't enough technically skilled people in the world that are like interested in writing the software to make assassination markets work really well, right? So that's one thing. 
And then another thing is that if you want to make it work well, they need collaboration between different people and collaboration between people rests on this assumption of, uh, and of honesty and goodwill. And if, you if you're talking about people that are already willing to make assassination markets, how they're already going to have that. Like criminal coordination is definitely kind of harder than it seems. And a lot of the successful criminal coordination kind of rests upon existing structures of coordination, like things like families or the or like these kind uh, of mafia organizations that have existed, quote, in meat space for a long time. And like coming up with a, a new one of those on the internet is not exactly trivial. So yeah, and I like basically I think anonymous internet technology it doesn't like solve a lot of the key problems that someone trying to make that kind of um, an, an anonymous uh, internet um, enterprise that wants to evade everyone uh, trying to go after it would have. All right, uh, let's move on from kind of uh, crypto and uh, yeah, on, on, from the blockchain today and kind of uh, how it stands onto thinking about uh, how how much better it might be in the future and, and the problems that it might be able to solve. So you and Glenn Weil and, and others involved in this radical exchange uh, project have been, um, yeah, thinking about how, how blockchain technologies could be kind of used to give people the, the right incentives to solve uh, problems that, like, yeah, collective action problems that humanity faces in, in a way that, that existing institutions are, are failing to do. Uh, and I guess that, that, that includes like uh, public goods provision or, uh, you know, avoiding the tragedy of the commons. Uh, yeah, for, for example, um, there's that liberal radicalism idea um, that, that Glenn and I discussed, which is, is kind of an attempt to give people reasons to uh, contribute their resources to, to providing public goods. I hope our listeners will, give this, for, will forget this long quote, uh, but I think it kind of uh, helps to motivate the, the, the whole discussion we're having here. And it's from an un unpublished paper on possible uses of cryptographic advances that I, that I hope we'll be able to, to, to link to when the, um, the episode comes out. Uh, and under the heading um, Disorganized Shared Interest Groups, it, it says, it's generally the case uh, within any given political system that only a very small portion of groups with common interests successfully organize to pursue those interests. For example, private industries often organize to lobby the government, but the consumers of these industries' products do not. Influential grassroots uh, movements have arisen around some issues like abortion and police violence, but, but not others of comparable concern like economic policy. Um, the collection of people who would be happy to become vegetarian if it meant everyone else did, uh, or to pay uh, for news if it also meant everyone else did, and so on, uh, is, is large, but people do not form robust organizations or enter into, into such packs. And similarly, even though voters as a whole would have clear common interests in coordinating to become more informed, uh, the possibility of such a widespread uh, agreement arising seems wholly implausible. And these kind of problems seem very widespread. So groups, groups interested in uh, funding lobbying efforts could use smart contracts that, that result in their making donations only if enough other people do as well, and perhaps uh, scaling down the donation size as the number of people uh, who commit grows. So I guess I just want to start by opening you, asking you a very open question, which is um, perhaps kind of yeah, the, the, the main topic that we want to discuss today, which is yeah, what incentive design mechanisms or kind of smart contracts or, or distributed autonomous organizations are, are you most excited about, um, whether they're blockchain related or not, and kind of how could they make a difference to the world? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think like, first of all, the whole kind of decentralized autonomous organization thing is interesting, but also there's limits to it that we didn't, uh, I think, kind of quite realize and appreciate at the beginning. So the, the kind of challenge there, right, is that at the end of the day, all it is is people putting money into a pool and then using some pre-agreed rules to kind of distribute the money in the pool around. Like the problem it can solve, like for example, is giving people incentives to put money into the pool, right? And so, like you have something like Moloch DAO, for example, which uh, has like a few dozen people putting money into a pool, so sending money to Ethereum public goods, but the amount of uh, money that's in the thing is fairly small, 
And most of the money that is there comes from like rich people, which in economic theory would predict are kind of the ones that are at least from a selfish point of view, more naturally inclined to be willing to send their money into these kinds of things because they benefit from a larger share of the of the benefit. Like it's not solving a lot of the kind of fundamental public good problems that we would ideally want to solve. So that's one challenge. Another challenge is this uh, whole kind of collusion resistance issue, right? Which is basically that one of the main benefits of a blockchain is that everything that happens on a blockchain is public, it's publicly visible. And even if you zero knowledge encrypted for privacy, these kind of traceable records and receipts that you can audit and use to prove what happened. But the problem is that if you analyze a lot of the mechanisms that we use in the real world, many of them like really crucially rely on an assumption that people are not colluding with each other and that if a person takes an action, the only consequence of that action is the is the consequence that's kind of defined inside of the mechanism, right? So like if you go into a, to an election and you go make a vote for Andrew Yang, then like the only consequence of that is that it slightly increases the probability that Andrew Yang is going to win. Um, and that's something which uh, affects everyone in the country and like ultimately in the, um, in the world, right? Like there is no kind of specific benefit that you get from it. But if you start having votes on a blockchain, then, you know, other people can see, oh, hey, you've voted for this guy. And people can make smart contracts that say, oh, you know, you voted for this guy and uh, I'm going to give you some amount of money or, the, or, oh, you voted for this guy and like I'm going to penalize you or, or I'm not going to sell things to your employee. And so the problem with a lot of these DAO constructions is that they run into these kind of twin problems where one of them is plutocracy, which is that only the rich people really have an incentive to participate. And the second is collusion, which is basically that like really if these things do become sources of substantial economic power, then people are going to try to use these techniques to manipulate each other into voting in particular ways. And we've seen both of those examples. So like in the um, a lot of the coin votes that we've had in Ethereum, like there, it's been the case that just one guy had over 20% of the entire share of the votes. In, in um, ELS, there was um, a lot of interesting evidence of collusion happening. And uh, in the case of, of uh, ELS, well, what happened was that there was this kind of collection of pools, like seemingly based in China, some in other places, that had agreements um, with each other that just said, like, I vote for you, you vote for me, or like, I pay you money, um, and uh, you vote for me so I can become a validator and I can give you some of that money. And all these different things that are just basically fundamentally break the economic model, right? And like the extent to which economists like implicitly assume non-collusion is pretty severe. Like if you just open up any like most game theory textbooks, they just like people often think of it like as the, as though the worst thing that these things assume is perfect information and perfect rationality. But like really, no. We also uh, make this weird assumption that like everyone is making decisions independently. There aren't groups of people that are kind of thinking about each other's incentives. There aren't people each other to make decisions. And so even like something like a second price auction, for example, there's all these famous mathematical proofs about how optimal it is, but in reality, if the first top bidder and the second highest bidder are colluding, they can work together to push down the price and it's not efficient anymore. So 
trying to figure these, like basically once the possibility of collusion enters the picture, then just a lot of things break and the space of mechanisms that you have to work with ends up like really decreasing by a huge amount. So this is where the work that I've been, uh, that I mentioned earlier on um, collusion resistant mechanism design really comes in, right? Like you can think of it in its simplest form as being just uh, an online voting system, but really it doesn't have to be a vote, right? It can just be select any function, like F of a bunch of votes and let everyone provide their inputs and then compute the output and provide the output. And you do this computation in such a way that nobody learns what the actual inputs were and nobody has the ability to prove what their inputs were. And if you do things that way, then you actually can kind of instantiate in reality this game theoretic ideal that says that people are making decisions independently that a lot of these systems rely on. And so we can start actually like doing things like quadratic voting, quadratic funding, and all of these really wonderful things at larger scales. Okay, just to uh, jump in and explain a little bit here, uh, quadratic voting is a system where rather than everyone get one single vote uh, that they can contribute um, to help make a decision on an issue, uh, regardless of how intensely they feel about it, uh, rather each, each person in a society would get a particular number of kind of voting credits uh, each year, and uh, they would be able to decide in which elections they're going to spend those credits. But for various reasons that we won't go into here, uh, it's efficient that people's voting power um, increases only to the square root of the number of voting credits that they're choosing to spend on a particular issue. So uh, if you want to cast one vote on an issue, then you would spend one voting credit. If you want to cast two votes, then you need to spend four voting credits. If you want to spend uh, make three votes, then you need to uh, use up nine voting credits and so on. So this kind of balances uh, the value that you get from people being able to express how intensely they feel about a particular topic and maybe how informed they feel they are about it uh, with the fact that you don't want you know, individuals who are particularly monomaniacal to uh, have the tail kind of wagging the dog and uh, completely control the decision that, that um, most people uh, disagree with. We talk about uh, quadratic voting and its pros and cons uh, quite a bit in the episode uh, with Glenn Weil. Otherwise, uh, back to the show. Like it's not going to solve all the problems, but I definitely think something like it is necessary to kind of prevent those schemes from completely breaking, right? Another example of collusion, actually, this is a fun one. Uh, so uh, quadratic funding, which is also called overall radicalism, this uh, mechanism proposed by uh, Glenn Weil for uh, funding uh, public goods. And uh, the basic principle here is that you have projects, and each of these projects represents some public good, and people have the ability to donate money to projects. And... If multiple people donate money to a project, then there's this central pool of uh, money which basically adds a subsidy to the donation to kind of take into account the fact that each of those people are contributing money to something that benefits all of them together. And the more people donate, the more uh, the subsidy grows kind of quadratically. And so we have this thing um, called uh, the Gitcoin MCLR, which is basically trying to do that at a small scale for public goods within the Ethereum ecosystem. And right now the matching pool is about $50,000 every couple of months. And the problem that it had was uh, that there were a couple of cases where there were just accounts that were kind of clearly either not legitimate accounts and like big accounts, or in some cases were kind of related accounts that were voting for the same thing. Like the biggest example of this was that there was a bunch of accounts that were all employees of the same company that basically donated to the company. 
and collected the, uh, the, the CLR matching. I think like these kinds of exploits, uh, I mean, they're definitely going to happen to some extent, but there's things that you can do to mitigate them. Like one example of a thing you can do to mitigate it is um, you just encourage more kind of honest participation. So the problem with the Gitcoin CLR is that there are only a few dozen people participating, but then if you increase that to a few thousand people, then a company with 10 employees is not going to be able to extract subsidies to the same extent. Another thing you can do is you can add the collusion resistance. A third thing you can do is you can try to change the formulas um, to try to be more kind of robust against the um, medium levels of collusion that actually exist. So I wrote an ETH research post on this. I mean, I forget the name, but if you just search like quadratic funding under, under my name, you can probably find it. So, yeah, and that's definitely been like, interesting to kind of just see in real life, like how this market for public goods works and like what it does well and how it sometimes doesn't work. And like, from there, you keep going and improving it. Yeah. So uh, we've kind of jumped onto the, to the problems right away. Um, but, but I guess for, for listeners who, who aren't so familiar, is it possible to kind of paint a picture of like how in a good future, kind of the work that you're doing on incentive design, or, yeah, mechanism design, incentive design, and these like automated yeah, smart contracts or like automated processes on, on, on the blockchain, um, like how, how, yeah, how they could help and, and how, like what problems that could solve? Yeah. So I guess the, the big problem that the quadratic funding is solving, right, is this public goods problem, which is that like... There's just so many different projects that, and like things that all of us rely on where they're not a thing that like one person does specifically for another person. They're a thing that a person does and what the thing that the person does benefits a huge number of people and that person really has no fine-grained control over which specific people it benefits. And so one example of this would be open source software. Another example might be even just all of the blogs and public things that I write, this podcast, in the kind of less info and more physical world context, like public parks and roads. I mean, sometimes you can charge for roads, but sometimes you can't. Clean it. So, yeah, I mean, there's like just so many things in the world where that just don't come in this uh, kind of convenient format where it's one person doing a thing for another specific person. And so you can have a nice, efficient market where they're selling it to each other. We just don't have good institutions for kind of encouraging the production of these kinds of things. And so I mean, basically what we have right now is either governments or large corporations or philanthropists. And that's basically all. And like, it's good that we have like, each of those and they actually provide those things because if they didn't, um, there's no way we'd have a civilization. But at the same time, like there's a lot of things that they kind of leave undesired, right? Like they just, these mechanisms just like don't do a good job of kind of incorporating all of the information, the kind of highly distributed information that we have in the world about what it is that is useful and that people find valuable. Uh, so Quadratic funding is basically trying to make a sort of more market-like alternative that encourages the production of public goods that basically says, like, we're going to be neutral. We're not going to have our own kind of specific opinion about what is a real public good and what isn't. We're just going to say people can donate money to stuff. And if lots of people are donating money to the same thing, then like that's clearly a project that benefits a lot of people. So that's a public good. And so we're going to detect that and we're going to automatically subsidize it based on a formula. So 
the idea here is to really think about the final goal of these as being like basically our social institutions in the same way that like markets are basically our social institution and uh, democracy is a basically our social institution. Like it is the same kind of thing and could potentially work at the same scale, except um, at least hopefully it doesn't have the flaws that uh, some of these other existing mechanisms do. So that's the kind of higher high level idealistic pitch for it. And of course, Quadratic funding is one of the ideas. The other, there's also quadratic voting. There's also Harvard group taxes. There's also all these other things. And the idea there is basically that uh, we have all of this really interesting work on mechanism design that's some happened over the last century. Let's like actually use it and let's use it to build things that can encourage people to cooperate better. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that there's these issues with uh, quadratic voting and quadratic funding uh, that uh, they're vulnerable to kind of one person pretending to be lots of people and potentially benefiting from that. Uh, I guess there's also this issue of like, uh, at least with the quadratic funding, it kind of it needs matching funding in order to give people uh, like sufficient incentive to to donate the role or to like vote or yeah or provide their own uh, funding to, to to the right extent. Is there any alternative to just using kind of taxes to 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 provide that that matching funding? Yeah, and ultimately the funding has to come from somewhere. And basically it is like in a blockchain context, um, you could like if this becomes popular in Ethereum or in like other blockchains like Zcash, like you, you know, I talked to Zuko and he's definitely interested in the idea of just like printing a quantity of Zcash that gets automatic um, every year that gets automatically put into a matching pool. Potentially like governments and uh, tax revenue are definitely the thing that you would need the use of some kind if you want to do it on a large kind of really society-wide scale. I mean, it doesn't have to be the same taxes that we use today. Like, Glenn also has um, been doing a lot of research into carburetor taxes as one example. But in general, the idea that instead of efficiency decreasing taxes, we can try to have efficiency increasing taxes. And there's a lot of uh, really interesting work being done there. So the kind of big slogan that Glenn likes to use is uh, tax the congestible and uh, subsidize the increasing returns. So basically, like take all of the things that people do that are zero-sum activity, put taxes on that, then take that money and then basically shunt it over and use it to subsidize like public good projects that people do for each other. And like that's a really wonderful kind of one-sentence formula for like how to do political economy well. So that's interesting. Yeah, what are Harburger taxes? Harburger taxes are this idea that, like, for a thing that gets taxed, like, basically the owner has to set a price for it and they pay a, a property tax that's like some percentage of that amount every year. But then the price that they set is a price at which anyone else can go come and, like, basically buy it from them. Are there any, yeah, any mechanisms that you're excited about other than kind of quadratic voting or um, quadratic funding? Um, I mean, Prediction markets are probably one big example. And I think uh, in addition to kind of public good providing institutions, we need better info institutions. And things that are prediction market flavored definitely seem uh, really interesting there. And like they don't have to be exact uh, prediction markets in the way that Robin Hanson designed them. They could be even just the idea that you would have to put down a bond and that bond gets taken away if some negative event happens in exchange for putting down a bond like you would be able to have the ability to increase the the extent to which something gets done that does have some kind of risk 
Like there, there's a lot of different ways to kind of permute and apply the concept, whether we're talking about the integration policy or whether we're talking about uh, trade-offs involving different kinds of risks, whether we're talking about just what policy to apply to achieve some particular known uh, measurable objective in general. Like they're definitely not a yeah, tool that you can use for everything. I think the reason being that like prediction markets work well when the objective is known, but the objective is not always known and figuring out the objective is often more than half the challenge. But I, at the same time, I do think that they are quite underused um, uh, today. And I think one of the reasons I'm excited about blockchains is just the possibility that they could open up more room for using what prediction market and kind of security deposit like things. So, so you mentioned uh, earlier, yeah, that, that this is a really important issue of kind of establishing online identity to, to prevent uh, collusion or to, or to limit collusion. Can you kind of, yeah, explain or give an example of like how, how collusion can, can damage these, uh, these mechanisms and maybe like what, what kind of uh, work is being done maybe by you or others to, to create like a, a trustworthy identity system such that we can get around these problems? Sure. And so first of all, like these are problems that are basically wrecking the internet even today, right? So like you have these click farms where people just like buy up a few thousand phones, they buy up thousands of accounts, and then they use these accounts to just vote for things, to kind of push messages that they want to promote, to manipulate um, a lot of different kinds of, me of uh, mechanisms. And once we start using these kinds of mechanisms to allocate resources in more substantial ways for with things like quadratic funding, then there's just a huge incentive for people to just buy up a bunch of accounts, pretends to be a big crowd of people that all cares about some specific problem and like all throw a bit of money into it and then just uh, extract subsidies. And, uh, and for any kind of voting mechanism, you can use these sorts of things to swing votes. And you can use things to just manipulate online conversations and all of these uh, different problems. Like basically, we need to have like mechanisms that identify kind of who is a unique human that are more robust and that are more resistant to people just uh, like either creating a bunch of entirely fake identities or taking existing uh, identities and kind of buying them, buying them or renting them for different things. And that's something, it's a really hard problem. I mean, it's a problem that even governments have a hard time solving. It's a problem that corporations have um, a hard time solving, like centralized services, like have to just keep on fighting and even they don't really have especially good solutions. It is the sort of problem though, where like if we don't solve it in some kind of reasonably secure way, then a lot of these kind of quadratic funding based and like other kinds of mechanisms just can't end up working well. So I guess with normal voting, kind of people show up. Oh, I suppose, yeah, people show up to the, to the voting booth and they like say their name. And uh, I guess for some reason, there's like isn't as much of an issue with voter fraud, at least in the countries that I've lived, uh, that, that what you might expect. I guess kind of yeah. the bank uses kind of passports, which are maybe like too hard to uh, too hard to copy. I mean, are, are we going to have to go for something like as uh, systems as costly as that? Do you think in order to solve this problem, or, or is it or is it possible that just the the problem is insurmountable and it will kind of uh, just make it not practical to use quadratic funding or, or voting in the in the real world for for anything other than you know something where you can require that everyone actually rock up somewhere personally. I, I think there's definitely always going to be some dollar value at which uh, you can obtain fake identities um, for of different kinds on the black market. So I think it's also definitely important to continue the research on making things like quadratic funding be more robust to 
um, identity theft. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, one of the uh, recent uh, posts I made on ETH research is about uh, changing the quadratic funding formula so that it does kind of put a bound on the amount of subsidies that you can maliciously extract from the system if you have um, N identities. So yeah, things like that are important. So, so that, that, that might be something like a kind of minimum contribution for each person? It's not, it's not a minimum contribution. It's more a maximum subsidy per pair of people. Okay. Yeah, so there's that. And there's also, of course, the possibility of trying to make identities that, that are more kind of robust and that, and that work better. I mean, there's definitely things that you can try to do to solve it. One other problem that you that will end up uh, kind of going up against if you try to make systems for this that are universal is hostile governments. Like North Korea pulled prints uh, fake hundred dollar bills, so why can't they print uh, fake passports? And so you got like uh, Kim Jong Un with um, a click farm of uh, a million fake North Koreans uh, claiming there's the, all of these uh, really important public goods that uh, that you have we have to give money to. So like. These things like that, and it's definitely a challenge, and it's definitely the sort of challenge where, once again, it's like not fully insurmount- um, insurmountable, but also not fully surmountable. And so we just have to like get out into the real world and like, keep trying, keep seeing what the issues are, and keep improving it over time. We'll see. I mean, there's definitely a chance that the, that the identity issues are going to be too big, but eh, I hope not. Yeah, who's who's doing the the most impressive work on this? And is it kind of mostly a do you think kind of social or political problem, or is it more like a technical cryptographic problem? Some of both. Like the anti-collusion stuff is definitely cryptographic. The kind of figure out who's a real world uh, person problem is partially mathematical because often uh, you can use things like graph theory and like minimal cuts and all of these things to try to figure out how to actually aggregate the information to figure out who's probably a real person and who isn't, but also partially a socially uh, problem of like, how do you present these mechanisms and how do people participate and like which mechanisms you use. So it's some of both. I've read that you're kind of more excited about uh, quadratic funding than, um, than quadratic voting. Uh, why is that? So quadratic voting is interesting too, but there is a kind of unsolved questions with it. So one big example is that with quadratic voting, you still need to have someone who figures out what's going to be up for a vote. And the ability to put something up for a vote is like a really huge amount of power, right? Because, for example, like one of the use cases for uh, quadratic voting is like that it protects minorities, right? And so if you have quadratic voting on all the laws, then if someone comes up with laws that benefit a uh, majority slightly but really hurts some minority then like basically regular voting is going to pass those laws but quadratic voting is not but then like here's the challenge right like let's imagine we have a world where 10 percent of the people are blue-eyed and 90 percent of the people are um, anti-blue-eyeists and they want uh, they want kind of but not but like not to the point where they die for it um, to be, to have a genocide of blue people and kill them all. So this is the sort of setup where if you set up a vote to just kill all the blue, blue-eyed people, maybe two-thirds would vote in favor, a bunch would not care, and all the blue-eyed people would vote against, and so the blue-eyed people would lose. In a single quadratic vote, the blue-eyed people like care about not dying way more than the um, anti-blue-eyeists uh, care about killing them, and so they would win. But if 
one person had the ability to just keep on putting things up for a vote, and that one person was an anti-Bullyist, what he would do is he would just keep on raising the question. And so every time there's a vote, everyone would have to make these votes, and everyone would keep on pay, would have to pay money to make these votes. But the problem is that the um, anti-Bullyists um, would lose, but because more, there's more of them and they're more spread out, they would have to pay less. And the blue light people would have to pay quadratically more, right? Like the blue light people, their votes are 10 times, maybe 10 times stronger, but they'd have to pay 100 times more money for that. And so if you keep raising the issue, then eventually you just bankrupt the blue light people, and then you raise the issue for a vote again, and the blue light people get you. So this seems like a pretty devastating problem. Yeah, I mean, it's like, this is the problem, right? Like with voting mechanisms in, in, in general, like there's this very large design space of like what can be put up to a vote and when and under what conditions. And like even democracies have very different rules for when elections can happen with very different consequences. And yeah, and it leads to very different outcomes. Whereas quadratic funding is really nice because the mechanism really is kind of unopinionated in that way, right? Like with quadratic funding, you just have projects. Anyone can spin up a project. Anyone can donate money to a project. And then you have subsidies. And that's it. Right? Like it is really nice and clean and neutral in that sense. And that's a property that I really like about the mechanism. Yeah, there's this website, scorevoting.net, which uh, has a couple of pages which have like pretty pretty vociferous critiques of quadratic voting, and I think including the one that, that we were just talking about. To, to, to be honest, I, I found I found the articles a little bit hard to follow and uh, a bit a bit a bit ranty. But I, I saw you responding to the to the one Twitter. Um, do, do you want to comment on uh, like yeah whether there's any other problems and I guess how how convincing you you found those uh, those articles and maybe also like uh, yeah do any of the critiques uh, from from that site uh, carry over to quadratic funding. Yeah, that critique on the site was definitely like really ranty, but in the critiques of uh, quadratic voting in general that I think I care the most about, I mean, one of them, and this doesn't apply to quadratic funding, is um, this issue of like who makes the vote, who decides what's up for a vote. And I think like that's definitely a big issue. Like it's not a deal breaker. Like it doesn't mean that you can't have quadratic votes, but it does mean that they're not just like a universal replacement for things. Whereas with quadratic funding, like it does, it doesn't have that issue, which is nice. The other kind of class of critiques of um, all these public good mechanisms that I feel like the radical exchange movement doesn't uh, pay enough attention to is a kind of rational ignorance and rational irrationality issues. So basically, like the size of incentive that an individual person has to form a correct opinion on any of these topics is tiny. And I mean, Brian Kaplan wrote this uh, big book um, on uh, the myth of the rational voter, where he basically a, a big core part of like why he likes uh, capitalist libertarianism, which is basically that like people are good at making decisions when the consequences affect just them personally, but they're terrible at thinking through issues care, uh, carefully when the like their individual contribution to an issue is just so tiny. They don't really have any kind of incentive or social pressure to be correct. And so all of these other kind of irrational human biases, instead of just having an influence, end up dominating completely. And so, so if you think of just like some farmer in Texas, like if you think about like what incentive he has to form a correct opinion on anthropogenic global warming, the answer is basically none. 
Right, like his incentive is to have opinions that like make him look good in front of his friends, essentially. And there's definitely plenty of cases where people do have uh, very correct opinions on and on things, and despite not having an incentive to. So I'm definitely not claiming incentives are uh, always necessary, but at the same time, right, like there is definitely this issue and quadratic mechanisms do mitigate it but you know do they mitigate it completely i don't um, definitely not and uh, the score voting guy even did the math and pointed out how if you use quadratic voting to run an election like the average person would end up basically paying two cents and like or two cents worth of incentive really going to end up changing anyone's opinion probably not right so that's like one issue and then also in general if you go out into the world there's like plenty of unsavory organizations that end up like exploiting some combination of biases lack of education like all of these things to pretty successfully extract money from a lot of people right like you have ponzi schemes mmm uh, and all like pyramids uh, and, and all of these things and we then start talking about oh well how about we're going to create a scheme where if enough people donate money to someone, that person gets even more money than like that could end up supercharging cults. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Like that, it's definitely something that I kind of worry about. And, but like, this is one of these sorts of empirical questions that you can't really figure out easily ahead of time. Like you pretty much just have to run the mechanism at a small scale, you know, whether or not the, results of the mechanism are of high quality and if they are you keep on going from there i mean if this sort of thing ends up being a problem then one category of a solution that like once again i think radical people like generally don't think about enough is a sortition so basically like if problem is that you're just asking people to express opinions about all of these issues and they don't have enough incentive to really come up with correct opinions and they don't even have enough time to come up with correct opinions, then why not just kind of force them to specialize? So for any project that has more than a million people that participate in it, just use a random number generator, select a random 0.1% of people only those people are allowed to contribute, then you multiply their contributions by, like, I forget, it's either a thousand or a square root of a thousand, like whatever the right factor is to compensate. And then suddenly each one of the 0.1% of people that do contribute is making a significant change to the output. And so they have more of an, uh, an interest in like actually figuring out what a sort of correct answer would be. So that's like one category of uh, solution that could be in worth exploring i think how serious a problem with kind of smart contracts i kind of you know, i guess i guess any process or mechanism that gets locked into a blockchain uh, is it kind of that we want that we have to then establish clearly ahead of time like exactly what we want to contract about and usually yeah, figuring out exactly what the goal should be uh, is there's usually a lot of ambiguity in contracts a lot of like negotiation that goes on between parties like after a contract is signed on exactly what they intended in order to avoid them having to like bargain forever up front yeah how, how serious a problem is that uh, with smart contracts in terms of limiting their potential application in future yeah, so I think this is basically the same problem as the Oracle problem, which is the contracts don't understand and the real world very well. And 
Like it's definitely a limitation to what contracts can do, right? Like you're not going to modify an employment contract and then like get rid of employer employee disputes. That's like not how it works. Like smart contracts are a much more uh, specific tool that basically is about like, hey, here are the mathematical rules of a kind of economic interaction that we want to have. And let's formalize the things that we can formalize. And there are going to be inputs that have to come from the outside. And if the, if there are, then we can formalize like where the inputs come from. But that's a kind of specific encapsulated thing that you can you can worry about separately. So there's definitely cases where smart contracts make a lot of sense. So like for example, there's been uh, people recently trying to do parametric insurance, which is basically contracts that automatically pay out if there's a drought or if there's a hurricane or if the temperature goes above some number. And there's a project doing this for Puerto Rico, there's a project doing this for Sri Lanka. So that's the sort of area where you do need to get some data from the outside world, but the amount of data you need to get from the outside is kind of very limited. And it's a thing that like you can design an entire system around and make sure the system works well. And then once you have the system, then it becomes easier to just build these things on top of it. and at least kind of conditional on the Oracle working, the rest of the system is also guaranteed to work. So, you know, and that's the sort of thing smart contracts can do. That just made, made me think, so this issue with quadratic voting, where you have the problem of exhausting people's votes by putting up the same idea again and again. The UK Parliament, for example, has a rule that you can't put up the same substantive thing for a vote more than more than once in the same parliamentary session. I wonder if you have enough of like a human element in it where like, People who like trusted elected representatives are kind of acting uh, like like the speaker does in the UK Parliament to kind of uh, you know control the flow of, uh, of of who speaks and what gets voted on. Do you think that uh, something like that could could help to make it work a bit better in practice? Yeah, I mean the human element is definitely the reason why like the formal systems that exist in the real world today don't break completely, despite there being the possibility of edge cases that could break them completely. Right, like the reason why. I don't need to like, go around getting signatures from 200 million people to turn on a light bulb is because we have courts that have common sense and that have decided that um, me shooting photons at other people's houses at that scale is not a uh, property rights infringement. And like the reason why shareholder governance continues to work okay is in part because we have these minority shareholder protections. The reason why votes continue to work okay is in part because we have these constitutional rules that say here's examples of things that you can't uh, vote for. And these kinds of uh, kind of exceptions are definitely important in improving outcomes, but if you have too much room for them, then there's a really huge cost of that as well, right? So like one example of this is like just the famous uh, kind of facts that there's just so many federal crimes out there that pretty much everyone is illegal uh, is guilty of doing at least some felony every day and so you pretty much have like no way to not be vulnerable to a legal attack if the legal system really wanted to go after you and so like the more you have a uh, kind of exceptions and in these kinds of case-by-case situations the more like sometimes they help you but also the more they're not there's something that's exploitable and that's uh, that it becomes really hard to work around and like in this case, like sure you could say that you can't vote on the same substantive thing multiple times, but then like who defines what is substantive? Is that something that could turn into a partisan weapon in the hands of the wrong activist judges? And I don't know, right? So the 
idea uh, that I think is the spirit behind the radical exchange movement. I mean, the radical exchange movement has many spirits. Well, it's the one that I want to kind of narrow down on here is basically that if we can design formal systems where the formal system comes somewhat closer to being optimal, then you still will need the rules to kind of figure out what the exceptions are, but the number of rules are going to have to be fewer in number. And so because of that, you still get a lot of benefits. Yeah, in the case of quadratic voting, like you'd have to have rules about like what it is that you can vote on. But alternatively, in the case of quadratic funding, like you need fewer of that. And so that's one of the reasons quadratic funding in particular is this kind of flavor that um, I'm really excited about. So, yeah, I guess I'm uh, feeling a little bit more pessimistic about all of this, uh, all this, this, this uh, radical exchange project maybe that I did half an hour ago. There's definitely a lot of challenges, but... At the same time, it's important to remember that, first of all, if we can make it work, then this is really huge. We're talking about a general-purpose infrastructure for funding public goods in the same way that money is general-purpose infrastructure for funding private goods. Like This is something that really could supercharge uh, the information society. And second, like, the fact that we're starting to think through problems is not a sign to be pessimistic because... Like, Really, every existing social institution that we have has a huge number of problems, too. Um, and we just don't think about them because they're so normal, right? So, for example, I talk about, like, is this uh, supercharged uh, donation gadget going to empower cults? And then you realize that, honestly, the largest country in the world kind of is run by one already, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Um... And then with all of these things like identity issues, like it's a challenge, but then like just regular voting depends on identity issues too. And we've eventually managed to stabilize it. Even like by my own standards, regular corporate governance, like just governance of like companies with shareholders, I think it's like completely economically broken, right? For basically the same reason that coin voting is broken. And like over the course of a few decades, we've managed to figure out like patches and shareholder regulations and all these things that kind of sort of make it okay. So I think the goal here is to basically try to experiment with things in, a, in these uh, smaller contexts, try to see how we work in these contexts, try to identify very kind of quickly what the problems are, try to move towards solving them. And, and I think it can definitely turn into something really, really interesting in five to 10 years time, right? Like it's, there's the kind of utopian versions of it that are going to be really hard, but then there's the less utopian versions of it, like uh, sticking Harburger taxes on copyright that could easily end up being really valuable and are just like one very specific and well encapsulated thing. So I think it's like push for the, the easier things at the same time, kind of, analyze the moon while shooting for it. And um, I think it'll get somewhere. Very interesting. Yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, if we could solve all of these problems, then the reason to be excited is that we could potentially solve like a large fraction of all public goods provision, which is kind of like one of the fundamental reasons that the world sucks. <laughs> but, but I guess you're saying even if we only get kind of 10 or 20% of the way there, just by kind of muddling through and fixing these problems to a sufficient degree, then that could still be a very big reward. Yeah, I mean, 10 to 20% of the way in the same way that like 0 to 1 is 10% of the way there from 0 to 10. Like, it's like both 10% and also not 10%. 
Yeah, speaking of kind of corporate governance, have there been any experiments to uh, try to use these innovative governance and incentive mechanisms uh, in kind of the governance of Ethereum and, and other, other crypto projects? So I mentioned Gitcoin Grants, right? It's this uh, quadratic funding gadget that's funded with about $50,000 every couple of months. So that's been running. And it's been, like, despite the occasional problems, it's been giving outputs that I think are pretty kind of good and match projects that I think are, are good and valuable. So, yeah, and it's like the main challenge at this point is just we need a whole lot of work on like figuring out identity and on collusion resistance. Uh, the projects that I mentioned, it's already being worked on by some cryptographers and they should have something out pretty soon. Are there any kind of mechanisms that you might be able to design where people don't benefit from collusion or, you know, pretending to have multiple identities or pretending to have few identities than, than, than they really have? Uh, yeah, I mean, money is like probably the simplest example of that kind of mechanism, right? Because like people paying ten dollars to something is like not treated differently from one person paying twenty dollars to the, the, the same thing. And like the way that I think about the importance of coercion resistance is that like in in a lot of cases you can show that a large class of mechanisms, if you allow for the possibility of coercion, basically just reduces to being money, right? Like. If you have a mechanism that says, like, people can give each other points, but then people give each other points publicly, and so I can give you points in exchange for you giving me points, then, like, the entire thing just kind of collapses until the equilibrium is that what's left is a money system. So, And I guess the reason we don't want that is that we want to kind of limit the power of the people who have the most money? The reason we want to have money systems, but money systems are good for private goods. They're not for public goods. So... Like we want to have things other than money systems as well. And the other class of thing that doesn't require um, identity, which is nice, is like info institutions. So prediction markets and things that look like prediction markets are probably one big example there. And I'm really interested in those as well. Okay, yeah, hopefully we'll have, have time to talk about uh, Futaki a little bit more in a minute. But I guess, yeah, to, 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 to get even more uh, ambitious, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, whether any of these mechanisms could, could replace governments or, or even uh, have an influence on kind of international relations. So from, yeah, from that paper I quoted earlier, it moves on to talking about yeah, yeah, what, what influence uh, cryptography technology might, might possibly in the future be able to have on international relations or promoting, promoting international cooperation and, and peace. And it says, in addition, the need to establish the credibility of one's commitments in the absence of other mechanisms has often been cited as a, at least a reason for participating in prolonged wars, the Vietnam War as a notable case. The number of lives lost, risked, and harmed because of an absence of good tools for making credible international commitments would be difficult to overstate. Therefore, given the stakes, the possibility that smart contracts could have applications in the international sphere is very much worth investigating. For example, smart contracts might enable countries to more credibly commit to international agreements that include penalties for non-compliance, for instance, those that seek reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah, what, what, what's your reaction to that? Do you see that is this uh, is this something that is uh, uh, probable enough that it's worth pursuing? It's definitely interesting, but then there's also challenges. Like as I mentioned, the Oracle problem, and the challenge is that like on geopolitical scales, the Oracle problem is a serious Oracle because like regardless of who's the Oracle, North Korea can probably find some way to hack it. So it's. Um, not as easy as saying, like, here's a smart contract that pays us a pile of money if we denuclearize, because how the hell does a smart contract know whether or not you denuclearize? Yeah, I think that's, like, the biggest challenge. Now, that could get alleviated somewhat when we have more things that are running on the blockchain. So when we have, like, for example, um, like, 
currencies get issued there and a lot of identity systems running on it, like carbon credits uh, being traded on blockchains and things like that, then you can start making smart contracts off of it, which I think could be really interesting. And there definitely are projects that are trying to do things like putting carbon uh, credits uh, on a blockchain, basically just to make them internationally tradable more easily. So definitely a lot of uh, value on things like that. I mean, also in international contexts, yeah, like one way to look at it is to try to improve kind of coordination ability between state actors. The other possibility is improving coordination ability between like people who are who are not state actors. So like making carbons tradable internationally is like one example of that sort of thing. Yeah. Otherwise, like there's also these kind of issues with like cert- certification and like trying to make those work securely in blockchains could definitely be part of that. It's yeah, there's definitely people actively thinking about it. Yeah, are there any um, other possible ways that the crypto technology could could help, uh, like with with international relations or peace or international coordination uh, or or government that that you would be interested in, in highlighting? See, I mean, credible commitments are definitely one. I mean, you like being a backbone for like quadratic mechanisms and these other kinds of things at scale is pro- is possibly another. Yeah, and those are probably the probably the big ones. A third one is also just like making regular kinds of markets more in, more international. But the challenge there is just it's inherently a more long term thing because when the stakes are high, that would imply that people have a large incentive to attack a blockchain or attack an oracle. And we're definitely not at the stage of uh, blockchains being resistant to attacks, and definitely not at the stage of oracles being resistant to attacks on that kind of scale. Yeah. So, so the point of oracles is that uh, sometimes, well, for many, many functions, the, the blockchain kind of has to know what actually happened in the real world. Uh, like, was there a hurricane? So should we pay out the insurance to people who had hurricane insurance? How close do you think we are to having trustworthy uh, oracles? And is that a problem that you think can be solved? Or is it something where, again, we just have to muddle through and do a, do a tolerable job? It depends what level of trust you're looking for. For kind of small scale things, I think, where they're already. For large scale things... I mean, we'll figure out things that kind of work over the next couple of years. Like I think MakerDAO has a huge incentive to come up with a model that's reasonable. And right now they have like some kind of multi-state out of 13 oracles and uh, maybe they'll find ways to iterate and refine on that. And Augur has their decentralized oracle for a prediction market. I mean, Kleros, uh, the uh, blockchain-based decentralized port, is uh, doing oracle stuff. How, how do those work? Um, basically, the decentralized oracles work by letting token holders like a random sample of token holders vote on any issue and then if some random sample votes incorrectly then a bigger sample can vote and uh, if it comes down to everyone voting then basically the token kind of splits in half and the theory is that the token on which the token holders um, vote correctly is going to be the more valuable one and that's been working tolerably i think so yeah and augur is definitely working okay for now I guess if you, it will be vulnerable to someone who like has a huge incentive to to manipulate it and is willing to spend a lot of money potentially. Augur is definitely not secure for markets that are larger than the value of all the uh, the, the Augur coins in existence. In crypto economics, it's going to be a common pattern that um, like the systems are going to be as secure as the market cap of their token, but not higher, and like, you just have to wait for the market cap of the token to hopefully go up. 
Are there any kind of other initiatives or projects out there that uh, you think could benefit from like yeah, crypto economic research, which uh, would be particularly effective from kind of an, an effective altruist point of view that it would be worth uh, directing people to? I mean, so as far as specific applications go, I mean, one idea that I've like talked to like give directly people about is that like you can have give directly as a universal like basic income, but you can also have give directly as a quadratic funding gadget. Explain that. Like basically, instead of giving every single person like X dollars and letting them spend it how they want, just like create a quadratic funding gadget and seed it with the identities in one of these communities and pop money into that. Right? And because we are talking about communities where people are very poor and so small amounts of money could help them quite a lot. But like these people don't just have a, a need for private goods. They also have a need for public goods. And so if you can just like seed a quadratic funding thing with a few million dollars, then potentially like it, it could end up being a way to kind of really transform them. Yeah. So that's uh, one example. And public good funding in general is obviously a kind of feed in for effective altruist problems because pretty much all effective altruist problems are public good ones to, to a really large extent. And so, yeah, I guess like public goods funding as a kind of general problem is definitely the thing that I'd focus on at the moment. What kinds of people uh, do you think are kind of necessary to uh, try to like get as many benefits from from this like strain of research as we can? Is it kind of people who need like more technical crypto skills or people who know like economics and political economy and can can develop the the crypto economic side of things? Um, Or is it perhaps something or like people who can like build projects and make them work or, or something else? I actually think at this point, the thing that we're lacking is like product people, so to speak, like people who are kind of specialize in taking these systems and making them work for users at scale. Interesting. Yeah, you know, we have the economic reasoning. We have like a lot of uh, cryptographic and mathematical reasoning. What we need to like actually figure out, figure out how to deploy an identity system. We need to figure out how to deploy... Um, quadratic funding things with the right user interface so that it actually uh, works well kind of fairly quickly without people like not knowing what they're supposed to do and, and all these other things like it's definitely a problem in that stage at this point crypto these days kind of has a blockchain in general has a bit of a reputation as being a bit of a scammy space and i wonder like how much is, is that uh, a limiting factor or, or a challenge for organizations that are going to try to to do these like really novel uh, projects that people might find it hard to evaluate it's definitely a challenge, and I definitely think that in general, blockchains and crypto as a whole are still viewed uh, quite uh, quite positively to the point where you have large institutions um, getting excited about it. Like you have these uh, UNICEF groups making uh, making trials on blockchains and all these other things. So I definitely don't think that like the existence of Ponzi schemes and scams and all these things is preventing the, the space from growing at all. Like it's definitely a cost. And if we can find ways to solve the issues, I definitely think it can attract more people. But I, I need the kind of the larger value of, get, of um, fighting the scams is basically that we'll have less scams. Let's talk about uh, Futaki and what you mentioned earlier. Okay, Futaki is a slightly uh, wacky proposal for an alternative system of government uh, where you would divide, divide it into kind of two different institutions that would serve two quite different functions. Uh, so the, the motto of it is vote on values, but bet on beliefs. 
So we'd continue to vote for, say, representatives to go to a parliament uh, who would then decide what the goals of society should be. And so that's the voting on values thing. But then there'd be a separate uh, process that would decide how to achieve those goals, how to achieve the objective that the parliament, say, has decided. And uh, one way that you could uh, set that up could have people uh, literally uh, betting on a market on how well society will be doing uh, on the metric that the parliament has set uh, if different policies uh, are implemented. So let's say that uh, the the parliament says that one thing that they care about is increasing life expectancy. People uh, could propose uh, different uh, healthcare policies, say, uh, and allow people then to bet with one another on how uh, long life expectancy would be uh, if these different healthcare policies were implemented. And uh, if people make accurate forecasts on what life expectancy will look like uh, if a particular uh, policy is ultimately implemented, uh, then they'll make money. Uh, But if they make inaccurate predictions about that, uh, then they'll lose money. The hope is that uh, having some system where people are kind of financially um, given an incentive uh, to make accurate predictions about the actual consequences of policies that that might be put up uh, would allow um, society to kind of make more rational decisions. And that while we want kind of everyone to have uh, an equal say in in the values that we are pursuing collectively, it's not the case that everyone has equal knowledge about uh, how to achieve those goals uh, that we want to set as a group. Uh, we talk about the idea of futaki uh, with someone who has promoted and helped to develop it, uh, Professor Robin Hansen, uh, back in episode 25, if you'd like to learn more. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, ha- ha- you wrote about uh, futaki back in uh, 2014 uh, and discussed like, some, some, of the, some of the pros and cons of it. How do you, how do you feel about it today? And uh, do you think kind of, if, yeah, uh, blockchain technology could, could be used to, to put it into practice uh, in any case? Yeah, I definitely continue to think that futarchy and, and using prediction markets as an input to decision making is really interesting. And, and as I mentioned, you got know, security deposits are sort of a sort of loss of liquid, but like related custom to prediction markets, and those are really interesting too. I think the main challenge with, say, using futarchy to run a country that I maybe didn't realize like a few years ago that I realize more now is basically like, how do you set the objective? And like, if you talk to AI researchers, then you know that like setting the objective is a really, really big problem. And if you set it incorrectly in the face of a really powerful optimizing force, then you could get very bad consequences. And like that exists with AI, but that exists like with prediction markets as well, right? Because like, if you're going to create a prediction market of, say, the average life expectancy and you're going to use um, that to run health policy, well, what, what some guy that is going to do is he's going to come up with a policy that basically says kill all the people that are statistically expected to have below average life expectancy, and that's going to push the number up. And so if you just have an automated mechanism, then the thing's going to basically vote for them. So that's the sort of uh, thing that definitely is a bigger challenge, but there are definitely cases where the objective like is known, right? So like one way in which um, you can kind of solve this problem sometimes is you combine a prediction market together with some other form of of, uh, governance, like it could be a quadratic vote or a regular vote or something else. So I suggested this idea that if you want to create a unique identity system, then one of the ways in which you can do that is you can have like basically a prediction market where you can just predict like which of these addresses correspond to real people. And you need 
you need to have like some threshold amount of money to vouch for you before you can be inducted into the system. And then the prediction market just is on this mechanism where if enough money challenges a person, then it comes to some vote and then the vote decides is this person actually a human or not. And if the vote decides that they're not a human, then you penalize everyone who supported them on the prediction market. Right. So the idea there is that the objective, which is basically is this person a human according to this other mechanism that we assume we trust is in a mathematical rule defines, then the problem doesn't exist to the same extent. But if your problem is I have money, how do we use this to do the most good? Then like that's harder to define. And so like prediction markets are not just magically going to solve that for you. So yeah, very often kind of collective action problems persist because of transaction costs, uh, like yes, yeah, search, like search costs, bargaining costs, like uh, the cost of making and enforcing commitments. It's kind of right to imagine that like one of the main ways that the blockchain uh, or crypt, yeah, that blockchain could help um, solve these problems is by by reducing those costs, kind of one way or another. Is that is that a good framing? Um, in some cases, yes. I think like the word transaction costs is one of these like really misleading things because it refers to I can't like, really unrelated concepts. Like the reason why we're not working collectively to fund public goods more is not the same category of thing at all as the uh, 2.5% fee charged by PayPal, right? Like they're not the same, like even though both are technically quote transaction costs, they're like totally not the same class of thing. And the reason why that's important to emphasize is because as markets become more efficient, one of those kinds of things goes down, but the other kind of thing is definitely not at all guaranteed to go down. And like sometimes it even go it even goes up if you end up accidentally disrupting traditional stru- existing structures of coordination. The kind of inefficiencies that are preventing more public good provision or in a specific kind of thing that you do need to approach in a specific way, just like the efficiency or the inefficiencies in private property leading to monopolies are a specific kind of thing that you have to approach in a specific way. And uh, commitment problems are a specific thing that you have to approach in a a specific way. And the the same thing with inefficiencies in in information systems and all all of these other issues. So they definitely kind of solve problems, but I do think that you want to have a framing that recognizes that we are dealing with different kinds of beasts here. What's your view of uh, Facebook's uh, Libra project? Ooh, that's a fun one. Um, so I guess like in terms of what their motivations are, and I think a big one is just that, uh, like Facebook is seeing that WeChat is getting into payments and, uh, WeChat's really successful. So Facebook needs to make their next move. And so Facebook should be getting into payments as well and try to become this kind of omnibus app. Um, but, and then if they're going to get into payments, the question is how do they do it? And the problem is if you do it through traditional banking and you want to be available in all these different countries, then there's just so many of these like regulatory complexities that you have to go through. And so the theory is that if they do it as a cryptocurrency, then it's kind of simpler for them in a bunch of ways. So that's kind of my read of part of um, what their motivations are. And, and another thing is that they kind of have to get into payments because their existing business model, which is like basically monetizing people's data as something that's kind of coming under political attack and we can expect it to come under political attack even more. And so they need something else. So um, from that side, the incentives definitely kind of line up for them to do that. And on top of that, I think uh, the people inside of Facebook 
they are like Silicon Valley people, and I'm sure many of them take the critiques about how Facebook is wrecking the world and everyone's privacy to heart. And so they you know, want to and uh, do better. And you, like Zuckerberg, uh, did that release that memo a few months ago about how he wants to push Facebook in a more kind of pro-privacy direction. Libra's kind of basically our privacy at this point definitely sucks, but uh, you know, we pushing it in a kind of pushing Facebook in a not hegemonic direction. But so that, that might have been their intent, though. Uh, and at the same time, obviously, they kind of failed in a bunch of ways in delivering on that because everyone just still associates it with being Zuckerberg coin, which is the exact thing that they would try not to be like reading this uh, association with 28 different members. So, yeah, and I guess given that the thing is to a large extent this kind of political and regulatory play, it's the political and regulatory responses that are really going to decide its fate. Uh, so, you, so you think from a t- technical standpoint, it's it's okay? So it's it's more a question of like, of the politics? Yeah, I mean, from a technical standpoint, like a lot of it's just the same as Ethereum. Are, are there any, are there any um, blockchain projects that you think are, are just stupid and that you wish didn't exist? <laughs> It starts with a T and rhymes with Kron. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, no, there's realistically more than half of them. Interesting. Okay. Is there no kind of summing up like what, what their main problem is? I mean, there's a lot of projects that just basically see uh, blockchains as a way of doing a money grab. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of politics with these projects, uh, how have you found uh, that the challenge of kind of like uh, making happy all of the different kind of constituencies that, that Ethereum has, I guess, like people who hold it, like people, the developers, like the people involved in the foundation. I imagine there's like a lot of challenges and potential tensions there. Yeah, it's definitely a big challenge, especially more recently now. The community has been growing a huge amount since around 2017. But before it was much tighter and everyone was talking to each other really frequently. But now it's uh, gotten to the point where you can clearly identify kind of sub-tribes forming. And that's like both inevitable and there's risk associated with it. So even just like figuring out the next steps in the Ethereum roadmap is something that just keeps on requiring more and more and a consensus building. And that's, uh, I mean, first of all, it's good because it means the platform is getting more decentralized. But on the other hand, it's important to make sure that it continues to be able to actually move somewhere. I guess to kind of, to kind of wrap up the section, do you think that, the kinds of uh, you know approaches to making the world better that we've been talking about, like crypto economics, uh, blockchain, uh, these incentive design mechanisms, are they kind of underrated by people and that we should be seeing kind of more smart people moving into them? Or do you think they're kind of maybe appropriately rated or maybe even overrated and maybe too many people are trying to make them work and, and, the, and relative to the, the difficulty of the challenges? Hmm. I mean, by the world at large, it's uh, probably def- definitely underrated. Like the world at large, I think at this point still sees crypto as just being like a coin thing and maybe a trust thing. And the kind of subtleties around like, oh, let's come up with ways to make mechanism design work and like, let's get quadratic funding running, running on this thing and all this other stuff. Like, I don't think that's kind of gotten into the public consciousness yet. Definitely an opportunity for it too. Like, it's definitely the sort of thing where it does feel like there's a sort of political moment right now that's favorable to it, at least among some communities. Inside of the kind of existing group, there's definitely kind of large portions of the crypto space that are overrated. And as I mentioned, like the whole 
like let's rescue the world from the um, evils of a uh, 2% annual inflation thing is like for possibly one of the parts that I'm the least excited about. But there's other aspects that are really interesting too. Yeah, so I guess it depends on what aspect and who you're talking to. Uh, maybe this is this is an aside. I wasn't sure I wanted to go into, but that the people who are like so concerned about you know the Federal Reserve and and inflation, what what is driving them? Because just as someone who's kind of studied economics, I feel like monetary policy has like worked out reasonably well. Like two percent inflation is maybe if anything too low. Um, what's 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 going on here that this is such an interest for a significant number of people? I mean, I think like first of all, there's this kind of entire heritage of kind of Austrian economics and gold bugism and these kind of sister movements to libertarianism that have existed for a really long time. And in a lot of people in the crypto space, like like libertarianism and just historically speaking, it has kind of co-evolved with these positions. And like it makes I, I can see why they'd be attracted to these kinds of positions, because they basically say that, like, we should get the government out of the money supply. And that's like it definitely is a sort of ideologically aligned viewpoint in that sense. I mean, also the monetary stuff, I guess, particularly appeals to people given that the main kind of thing that distinguishes this set of decentralized projects from the ones that came before it is the fact that there are coins inside of it. Yeah, I guess that just, I mean, if you're going to ask me like why an Austrian gold bugism like attracts people in general, I guess, like, it's a political ideology that attracts people for the same reasons other kind of political ideologies that kind of claim to know big secrets about about how certain kinds of existing institutions are totally screwing up and wrecking everything and attract certain kinds of people. Do you worry that if cryptocurrencies did become like the main store of value or medium of exchange, that kind of the, the lack of a central bank that can engage in monetary expansion uh, could could lead to more financial crises or like more macroeconomic destabilization? So it's a good question. And I think, uh, first of all, governments do have a lot of policy tools other than monetary expansion and contraction to use. So, like for example, just one random thing um, in uh, Singapore, uh, obviously, um, that I like um, is um, that apparently at one point um, the government has ad- adjusted the mandatory pension contribution rates for employers like downward during a recession. So they basically use that as a lever to reduce um, employer side costs uh, during a recession, which is when you theoretically want want um, employers' high costs to naturally go down, so you don't have to lay off lots of people. Otherwise, and there's there's like fiscal policies and all those tools that you can use. So I definitely don't think that it's going to cryptocurrency fully succeeding would uh, take monetary policies and effectiveness down to zero. And another thing also is that if uh, people use cryptocurrency as a store of value but don't use it as a, a unit of account which seems extremely likely because cryptocurrency is just way too volatile to be a unit of account, then just adjusting the unit of account is still a highly effective policy tool the governments are going to have. So there are risks, but I think there are these opportunities and options as well. Of uh, kind of all of the uh, potential new applications that we've been talking about, uh, like which ones do you think might uh, we start to see like in, in, in the, in the shorter term, perhaps in, you know, some more modest, uh, modest form, where that, like an actual application that might get people excited and start really helping with a, uh, with a real life project. 
uh, blockchain applications, you mean? Yeah, I was thinking of like, you know, other things like, you know, quadratic voting, quadratic funding, uh, or like, or like just, you know, decision, like collective decision making uh, systems. Uh, are there any ones that you think like might, might actually, uh, you know, st- excite people because they, because they work soon? Yeah, and as far as radical stuff goes, I think uh, like internet forums are a huge ground for innovation because like incentives and curation inside of internet forum environments is definitely horribly screwed up in a whole bunch of ways. And so there's a huge number of things that potentially could be improved. And it's also this kind of target that's barely insulated from other things. It's kind of very open to innovation. You can try small things, expand them over time. So I think it's a interesting area to start looking. All right, uh, let's move on from talking about crypto to talking about uh, the long-term future of humanity uh, and existential risks, which is something you've taken a bit of an interest in over the years. Yay. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, to, I guess to get started, yeah, what are your feelings towards the um, kind of philosophy of, of long-termism, which I guess uh, for, for simplicity, I'll uh, summarize as the, um, the, the view that like the most important moral consequences of our actions uh, are impacts that happen like more than 100 years in the future. And I guess that we place too little weight on those impacts uh, today. Yeah, and that definitely does seem seem like a perspective that's kind of really important and is definitely kind of naturally easy for humans to just forget it, forget and not think about, right? Because people who exist a hundred years from now like don't even exist today, and so if you like think about how little kind of active effort people are um, often willing to put into just helping people who exist today on the other side of the world, well. Like helping people who don't even exist today and will exist a century from now is definitely something that comes even less naturally to people. So, yeah, it's something that is valuable and it's something where, like, there's clearly very large gains to be made, as, like, Tyler Cohen pointed out in Stubborn Attachments. If you uh, care about economic growth, um, then, like, the um, positive consequences of pushing economic growth up could potentially be pretty large because we're talking about percentage points compounded over the course of a century, which could make a really big difference in the lives of people. And existential risk reduction is um, another uh, really natural one there. So I guess support. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Do you feel like you have any kind of, do you you have like an underlying moral philosophy that that, that drives uh, kind of the value that you place on the long-term future or just like other things that you value, like kind of utilitarianism or like something else? I guess I'm definitely less of a sort of one single big idea thinker and more of a like, hey, let's do things that seem to work reasonably well across a large number of different perspectives thinker. So and utilitarian values definitely are um, a really big part of that. But also basically just thinking about things that we really should val- like value or and spend more time caring about. But don't end up caring about for reasons that just seem to not have any logical backing behind them, I suppose. So more, more of a moral pluralist, a bit like a bit like Tyler Cohen is. Yeah, so I, I'd say so. How common is long-termism within the communities uh, you're involved with? And have you found any kind of approach to introducing those ideas to other people? Or is that is it not something that you uh, particularly try to, try to promote? I mean, within the crypto community, there's definitely a small pocket of people that really care about these ideas. Like Jeff Coleman is the other person in the Ethereum community that uh, really actively promotes these sorts of things. There is some some others as well. So there is a pocket that really care and then a large other pocket that doesn't. Is, is the crypto community potentially a good place for people to uh, 
I mean, there's like lots of really smart people uh, working on it. I wonder if that's a place that maybe there should be more efforts to uh, to spread uh, like long-termist ideas and get people more involved. I'd say so. I mean, we've I mean, we've definitely have tried. Like we've uh, invited uh, Stuart Brands from the Long Now Foundation to speak at DevCon last year, and I think that was well received. So I personally definitely kind of believe in this idea that like Ethereum should not just be a community about a cryptocurrency and should not just be a community about decentralization. It should also be this kind of broader philosophical community that reaches out to these ideas that are potentially kind of adjacent and really aligned and tries to kind of forge bonds there. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Tyler's book, uh, Stubborn Attachments. In my interview with him, uh, I guess uh, he suggested that kind of, and I guess part of the thrust of the book is that like uh, a good way for ordinary people who don't want to dramatically change their lives to kind of improve the long-term future is to uh, increase the, the rate of economic growth uh, one way or another. And mm-hmm. I kind of put forward to him that this was uh, much less impactful uh, like per day of work than focusing on like risks from emerging technologies or promoting international peace or coordination or things that are more targeted on stuff that uh, seems like it affects the long-term future more than just like economic growth in general. Yeah, who do you feel you're more kind of sympathetic to on that, on that issue? I don't know, right? So like when I say I'm a pluralist, it's like I think there's a huge amount of just uncertainty about these issues. And I guess I tend to focus on doing things that seem like they would have good good consequences, regardless of like which way some of these uh, kind of unknowns might end up falling. So I guess like, the unknown here is like, well, there's a bunch, right? So one of them is like, what is the absolute size of existential risks today? Like, could be a one um, percent chance humanity is going to blow up before the singularity. Could be a ten percent chance. Could be a sixty-five percent chance. Do you have an answer? <laughs> uh, more than 10%, less than 90%? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, that seems about right. Also, in, in, in terms of economic growth, like there's all these knock-on effects. Like if society is richer, then there's more people that are going to be more free to care about things other than materialism. And so you're potentially going to increase the size of the community of existential risk people. If... Uh, you get more economic growth, you might have less conflict. Like it's definitely, like, I'm definitely by no means kind of sold on economic growth as being like number one thing to kind of really be focusing on. I mean, even just in terms of my own donations, like I've donated to projects that basically contribute to economic growth in Africa, but like developed countries less so unless you kind of count blockchains themselves as being in that area. So, so as you mentioned, you donated to uh, like AI safety research at MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, and, and may- maybe some other places as well? Uh, I'm not sure. For AI risk research, I think I've just done MIRI so far. What, what's kind of pers- your, your perspective on the, on the risks that advanced AI systems uh, might pose? Do, do you have a particular take on, on what risks are, are most likely and, and how you think we ought to deal with them? The simple kind of 101 risk that the AI risk people yell at you about, which is basically that, hey, we're going to make a super intelligent AI and then it's going to just kill us um, all in progress of solving some other problem uh, that, it w- that it wants to solve without even realizing it does something we wouldn't, uh, it's doing something we wouldn't have wanted it to do is um, probably, like, it's definitely something that's plausible enough to be concerned about. And I'm definitely happy that there is this group of people that's actively pushing forward on understanding that risk better so that when when the time comes and when much larger groups of people become really concerned about this, there, there's going to be a lot more existing real work and research they can build off of. 
Yeah, I'm not sure how much you follow, but there's kind of like uh, multiple uh, schools of thought. It's kind of like, so, so the Miri folks tend to be more worried about like an, an AGI system that's like potentially quite different than the kind of machine learning uh, that, that we use uh, currently. And I guess they're trying to prepare, uh, do the groundwork for like how, how you might design that and uh, ensure that it has like a yeah, value function that is aligned with what we want. And then there's kind of people who like start more with like exactly the machine learning systems that we have today and try to figure out, well, how do we make those uh, more aligned and, and imagine, well, what if we could develop like a general artificial intelligence just by like, you know, progressively powering up the, the, the current methods. Did you, do you have any, any, any thoughts on that? Do you, do you kind of track that debate at all? Yeah. And I've definitely seen kind of presentations from people doing each one of those approaches. I definitely think they're both the kind of really important because like the approaches that are basically trying to kind of figure out alignments in from a more sort of formal uh, point, point of view right now. Like it's definitely good that the people are working on that. But on the other hand, like if you have nothing to work with, there's limits to how much you can accomplish. Like they have models that even say that like, implicitly assume that these AIs are going to have utility functions. But like what if the AIs that we end up creating don't even work by having well-defined utility functions, right? Like what if we just basically keep on improving GPT-2 until eventually it just predicts the actions of people well enough to act like a human and, and it does a bit better than that. So it's definitely, I think, good that we have this kind of approaches that are trying to improve alignment of the AIs of today, like in case, to cover the possibility that the AIs that are going to be superhuman do end up working similar to that. So your your approach would be kind of to hedge your bets, like do, do a bit of both and then... Uh... Uh, or like, and maybe other approaches that come up, and just kind of hope that one of them, one of them turns out to be the relevant. Yeah, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, I'm definitely a kind of hardcore like hedge your bets, do multiple approaches. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any views on uh, the likelihood of kind of fast versus slow uh, AI takeoff scenarios, or like when, when do you think we we might uh, get like a general general AI, or is is that I guess you're probably pretty busy uh, dealing with with blockchain stuff to maybe follow all of that, but I'm curious. I don't know, like. If you ask me to give numbers, then the kind of approach that I would take is probably similar to the approach that I take for kind of very far mode techniques um, around predicting future technology in general. Like I might say things like, oh, well, AIs could win at chess 20 years ago. They can win at Go and image recognition and these other things today. So like, what's the, di- what's the kind of difference between that distance and the distance between today and being more intelligent than humans and like, start figuring things out from there you, you wrote a blog post a little while back saying that you thought that kind of both uh, the crypto economics research community and the and the ai safety and existential risk community are kind of trying to tackle um what is fundamentally the the, the same problem what is that problem and like and what, what what connections do you see there the problem is basically using dumb systems to control smart systems so like with crypto economics the idea is that you have these like very dumb incentive mechanisms and you're trying to use them to create incentives for humans, corporations, and potentially other actors to participate in things like proof of stake and like layer two systems and whatever else that you're building in ways that are beneficial toward the intended function of the system. And you're trying to kind of guard against capture and against people sort of gaming the system in unintended ways. And AI research seems to be similar to that, except that the kind of medium smart system is people and the really smart system is controlling is the super, potentially super intelligent AI. So 
there, there's a sort of parallel between the formats of the two problems. Yeah. Do you think there are any uh, lessons that either community has kind of drawn today that that is that you can like port over to, to the other one? And maybe are there any like really important disanalogies that we need to keep in mind? I mean, the main thing is that the, the kind of second problem is harder, both kind of more unprecedented in terms of like who the kind of quote adversary is, um, is going to be and, and um, how they're going to look like. Like we're not dealing with a set of agents. We're dealing with a single agent. Everything could potentially happen much more quickly. Uh, and could be more difficult to stop if it does start going wrong. So, like, the second problem is definitely, in a lot of ways, just a more difficult version of the first. There are potential parallels, like, for example, in these incentive systems, like, one of the ways in which you can often sort of get smart results out of the mechanism is by pitting smart agents against each other and rely on competition to get good outcomes. And, you know, some of the AI safety research relies on you know, adversarial networks in uh, different ways. And that's something that people also use with smart contracts where they're like uh, kind of engaging competition to try to find weaknesses in them and then improve them from there. Yeah. Interesting. Are there any situations under which you could imagine going on working on AI, AI safety research yourself at some point if, uh, if you came to think it was uh, like a sufficiently large risk? Potentially. And it's... Uh, Definitely the sort of thing that I could definitely see myself being really interested in at some point in the future. Like, I definitely think it's a really important problem. I guess like you have to sort of distinguish between the thing I work on and the thing that I think is the most important problem in the world because like I have specialties that uh, and like you have to work on that are uh, aligned with your specialty as well. And in crypto is definitely important, but it's also kind of has all these kind of things around cryptography and economics that like I personally can do well. Whereas with AI issues, like there's definitely there's definitely kind of game theory in there, but it's a lot of it's kind of a different flavor, and and it would take time to kind of get into the point of being able to make significant contributions given where this, the space is at this point. Are there any promising ways of improving the long-term future or kind of threats to the long-term future of humanity that uh, particularly trouble you that, that you think maybe deserve more, more discussion, like existential risks that people might be, might be underrating? Let's see. Um, I mean, AI risk definitely is like very scary in its kind of impact, but it's definitely kind of already rated as such kind of by the, that community. I mean, nuclear risks are definitely, I think, way overrated by the general public. Oh, okay. yeah. Why is that? Um, a nuclear war is going to kill 1 billion people, but it's not going to kill 7 billion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's something that like probably the larger part of the fallout from a nuclear war is not even going to be the explosions. It's all the people that die from like basically global supply chain disruption. Yeah. It's like a thing that could be terrible, but we can easily recover from in a couple of decades. Whereas, yeah, like the risks that would just, that would actually kill like all 7.6 billion of us are just make much worse because they sort of completely close off the door to kind of humanity reaching the stars and a literal and the, the more important metaphorical sense. Yeah. So are you uh, kind of skeptical about like theories of nuclear winter or like theories that uh, nuclear winter would be particularly extreme and kill like far more than 1 billion people? I guess I feel like those kinds of risks seem like risks that are manageable. Like, if if nuclear winter comes, we definitely have ways to make the Earth warmer, and we know because we've been doing a great job of that over the last century already. So there is definitely things that like 
we humanity can do and work its and work its way around if it sort of gets galvanized into it by necessity. But things that just kill humanity like quick, quickly while it's still complacent, and by then we have no no way to recover, it seem like a scarier thing. Are, are you are you completely confident, or like you sound very confident that kind of we would we would recover if you know a billion people died in a in nuclear war, or maybe a bit more than that. I guess, do you worry that it could lead to like kind of a breakdown of like international peace in general and kind of, yeah, there's like, it's kind of like that's, that's the first trip on the stairs and then we just keep, uh, get, like things keep going worse and worse and, and we don't ultimately recover to the situation that we're at now? I mean, if there's one thing that I learned from cryptocurrency price charts, it's that when things are going well, people underestimate the potential for things to start going poorly. But then when things are going poorly, people overestimate the, a possibility that things will just keep on going poorly and uh, poorly forever until they blow up completely. There is a bottom, and uh, once things start picking up from the bottom, they can often start picking up quickly. Yeah. Do, do you have any uh, any thoughts on kind of other other threats to the future? I guess uh, another one that people talk about a lot is uh, kind of risks from biotechnology. I'm not sure whether you have the time to, to track that one at all. Yeah, bio is definitely a pretty big kind of risk risk factor as well. Yeah, and the other the reason why bio is like potentially scarier is because um, unlike nuclear, you don't need a billion dollars, strictly speaking, to make a weapon. It's the sort of thing where, like nuclear weapons, I could totally expect the cost to build one still being like in the billions or hundreds of millions for quite a while. Whereas with bio, I could easily see it be uh, getting to the point of like just being three D printable at some point. Yeah, and that's there's definitely a lot of uncertainties around that, like. If it gets really bad, then like basically the only two stable equilibria are, I mean, one is you either have a totalitarian world government that just like inspects like basically all sufficiently advanced technological supply chains. And the other one is that people stop living in cities. Like a lot of things become easier when you stop living in cities. Like in the nuclear case, like I did the math once and uh, if you spread out everyone equally across the entire Earth's surface, then we 7.6 billion people divided by 150 million square kilometers of landmass gives you 51 people per kilometer. And at that rate, nuclear bombs become a less um, cost-efficient way of killing people than hiring samurais to run around with swords. And like with bio as well, right? Like, you know, like the thing has to spread somehow. And I mean, there's de- there's definitely the possibility of like second and third generation stuff that just spreads across the entire world through insects, but then like and, and then comes up with a way of getting around oceans and gets around other things. But that's a heavy lift. Yeah, it's like a big lift, but also just in general, like us uh, kind of moving away from sort of city based like very high density living is definitely something that I think about. Sometimes, like, I, I can easily see technology leading to at least a sort of partial move away, f- away from that over the next century or so. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting proposal that I've um, never heard before. I guess it's like a something of a defense of uh, strict zoning requirements. Maybe we'll have to bring back zoning uh, in order to uh, uh, prevent the, prevent the bio, bio apocalypse. I just worry that even if uh, there was a huge huge risk of everyone dying this way, it would just be like too hard to coordinate people to um, like provide a sufficient incentive to get people to to move away from cities because the economic rewards of agglomeration are so vast. I mean, people have a private incentive to move away from okay. cities. So. Yeah, I guess I guess it has to be that the risk has to be demonstrated. So I suppose like maybe you need a huge disaster and then then we fix it this way. 
Yeah, I mean, there's like definitely going to be panic and supply chain disruption and like all of those like things in the meantime. I mean, unless it somehow comes in some like very small and order orderly way. Yeah, have you have you presented this idea to to anyone and kind of gotten any feedback on like whether this is whether this is a like possible method of reducing existential risk in the in the long term? Not in the context of reducing existential risks, but like I mean, I have kind of talks to people about kind of moderate deurbanization in general. And there's definitely people that are bullish on it. Like they're basically just because, you know, telecommuting is uh, getting better and better. Uh, Self-driving cars could eventually turn into self-driving helicopters and even just drone helicopters and like Uber Eats and using those and, uh, and all of those things can easily make like living 45 kilometers away from a city center much more tolerable than it used to be. Another interesting thing is like self-driving buses as a uh, medium density transportation solution. When I was at the Radical Exchange Conference in Detroit, I would talk to a guy from from uh, Boston uh, government about this, and he was really uh, kind of bullish on them. So the interesting thing with self-driving buses is that they are, like, first of all, very low infrastructure, like you don't have to build tracks and all these other things. But also right now, um, 60% of the cost of a bus is the driver. Wow. Yeah, so if you get rid of the driver, like suddenly it becomes way more affordable. And also, you keep, once you have no driver, then it becomes economical to split up the buses in half, so they're twice as frequent. And then you can talk about dedicated lanes for them. You can also talk about like IT infrastructure, so you hook them up to the traffic lights, make sure they always get priority. And then we start thinking about buses being like almost as good as subways, and this becomes something you can roll out in like a city of pretty much any population level. So, yeah, and like that's, there's definitely these sort of trends of different kinds that do make it seem like it's possible the kind of high density metropolis is like basically at its peak right now and will we'll even start tapering off slightly. Interesting, interesting diversion there. I'll, uh, I'll have to look more, more into that one. So for me, as someone who's yeah particularly interested in the long-term future of humanity uh, and is yeah concerned about existential risks in particular, are there are there any ways that kind of crypto economics or blockchain or these coordination mechanisms do, do you feel like they they have much leverage in terms of uh, you know putting humanity on a better trajectory or, or, or changing the the long-term the long-term future? And I guess if if you're imagining someone who's kind of choosing between working on like AI safety research versus you know uh, going into blockchain-related research. Um, which which one do you think would probably be be better for for someone who's trying to make a a, a difference to the long term? I realistically, I think like both of those areas are really valuable, and it just does end up depending on kind of what your specialties and what your interests are. I mean, blockchains are definitely kind of in the like in the near term. There's all this potential for building coordination mechanisms on top of them and making global markets more efficient, like improving security of a, of a whole bunch of different things and all the, and all these other benefits but then like all of that doesn't matter if uh, the world gets blown up by, by an ai so <laughs> yeah yeah definitely both important um yeah are there any applications or like possible applications of, of of any of that research uh, for improving the long-term future that that we haven't haven't already covered that might be worth highlighting or like any any aspects of it that you think are particularly leveraged in terms of their their long-term impact so here's an interesting uh, kind of long-term flavored one um so Let's suppose that there is some public good that exists and that people can start contributing to kind of building now, but it's a thing that's not really recognized well as a public good today. But you think 
going to be something that's universally agreed to be a really important public good 20 years or 50 years from now, right? So like something that's kind of at the, uh, like, at the end stages today might be like ending slavery is something that's at the, at the end of earlier stages today might be like contributing to uh, carbon emissions reduction um, or even just AI research itself. Uh, so basically uh, coming up with mechanisms to try to encourage people to contribute to those public goods today. And so the general kind of pattern here is that you can create tokens that basically corresponds to like proof that you can actually participated in this public good project today. So like carbon credits would be one, uh, one, one example here. And you can start markets for these things um, today and you can make these markets work, like have, have them be really efficient, have them be kind of international, anyone in the world can uh, participate in all these um, nice things. And then you just assume that like the world is going to be more well-coordinated 50 years from now and people are actually going to care about like buying up these tokens because they will represent like either the like either the something like in the case of carbon credits the, the right to, to make a certain level of emissions or it, it could just be something that kind of enlightens like functional decision theory governments of the future just end up buying up to to, to kind of thank people who helped in the past and uh, to maintain the uh, commitments that these kinds of tokens are going to be valuable for things that matter in the future. So, yeah, that's an interesting kind of thing you could build on, the, on blockchain. Uh, yeah, I think I don't know some, someone else I know uh, has been on the show. Uh, actually, I think has had almost exactly this idea. I would call them impact bonds. Do, do you know Paul Cristiano? No. Oh, so impact certificates, I think. Yeah, no, uh, I think he's saying like almost exactly the same concept where it's kind of a non-profit like 80,000 hours would uh, would like claim to have accomplished particular things and then kind of sell the impact in exchange for like uh, revenue, which would be kind of donations of a sort. And then people would then, there'd, there'd, there'd then be a secondary market on these uh, these impacts that uh, we've had. And then if people in the future think that the, that the impact we had was like of more value than people thought in the past, then you can turn a profit by like buying it and then selling it later. It's a, it's a very quirky idea. But I guess, uh, yeah, in, in as much as you could really get people to, to kind of be convinced that these things have value in proportion to like how good the actions were, then uh, then it seems like it could be like a different and like potentially in some ways more efficient way of, of funding, funding nonprofits. Yeah, and like there's definitely a lot of these really interesting things that you can do when you combine these different uh, mechanism design ideas together. Like you can be combining their prediction markets and public good funding gadgets or combining together like assurance contracts and um, quadratic funding prediction markets can be combined together with pretty much anything yeah just definitely a lot of it about explored territory yeah you mentioned functional decision theory how much do you follow kind of debates on the philosophy of decision theory and kind of these heterodox decision theory uh, I, I, forgive me listeners if you don't if you don't know what that is i'm not going to try to explain it. it's too complicated but <laughs> and i know what they are um i and it's definitely a really just philosophically interesting branch of research. And my friend Jeff Coleman is a, from a, a Toronto is like a huge fan of like thinking about these things. And I, I, I definitely, on the other hand, like don't spend every day thinking about them, I guess. Yeah, and there's definitely people that kind of seem to attach sort of magical properties to these things that I don't think they actually have. Like, I definitely don't really subscribe to the idea that 
kind of public goods broad problems, for example, would just magically go away if people just had the right mindset that they actually have the incentive to get into today. Like, there's definitely people that do kind of stretch it into making that kind of claim, and I don't think they're correct on that. But yeah, and at the same time, there's definitely a kind of interesting things to learn from from there. And I even, I mean, at one point, I wrote a post kind of talking about how it could be a this could be the sort of thing that smart contracts are useful for because kind of organizations and like DAOs could basically commit to having internal kind of governance logic that favors certain kinds of things. And you can make certain kinds of contracts off of that that you couldn't do otherwise. That's, that's really interesting. I'll stick up some links to uh, descriptions of the, the, the issue of decision theory for, for listeners who want to kind of pull on that thread. Let's talk about effective altruism for a little bit. What do you like about kind of effective altruism as a, as a philosophy uh, or a community if, if you've interacted with it? And uh, maybe like what would be your biggest critiques or, of areas you'd, you'd like to improve? Yeah, I and mean, the thing that I like about effective altruism is just that it seems to solve this really important niche of um, being kind of altruistic and caring about, uh, about problems that go beyond kind of yourself and your own tribe, but also being like, effective and caring about problems that actually matter. Like... There's definitely this criticism that I hear about how a lot of these kind of do good or people and organizations just because there aren't any kind of incentives involved, like you just end up doing things in ways that are really inefficient, like either in terms of how they do it or because they just focus on problems that matter a lot less than other problems they could be focusing on. And it's great that there is a movement that's kind of very explicitly focusing on like, hey, let's not like fall into that failure mode. And it's also great that it's a movement that's managed to kind of sell charity as something cool to computer geeks. Yeah, and that's something that is, I think, really valuable. And it's definitely something that I that I kind of try to just promote as well. Um, yeah, so just what the movement is and what it stands for, I think, is kind of fundamentally a great thing. Um, in terms of weaknesses, I think... I mean, one is that it's like it's definitely had a lot of success at kind of reaching out within the the inner Silicon Valley tech community, but it has yet had much success in reaching out to you know international like well like wealthy people and international communities in general and communities other than the uh, than the tech community and just basically anything that's kind of further from San Francisco. Another one is that effective altruism, I think, still hasn't figured out, like, as a community, what its relationship is to uh, political action. Like, for a lot of people, the usual kind of approach is that, hey, if you want to do good, like, you should do it by kind of going out and protesting and campaigning for things. The theory basically being that uh, you you could just leverage your money, but it's much more efficient if you could basically – apply pressure to leverage like these existing really huge sources of money and influence that exist and kind of pushing them toward causes that you think are valuable. But then there's the criticism of that, which is that a lot of those activities are zero sum. And so like if there's a lot of people doing this uh, and they're just pushing their own biases, then are they actually kind of contributing anything good to the world sort of on net? And there's this kind of interplay between those two different arguments. And I mean, the rationalist kind of community definitely doesn't really do much kind of political action yet. And 
like people definitely do like go all sometimes go and say like yay open borders and like what a, a couple of these other sort of somewhat EA uh, EA flavored and uh, political uh, areas, but like generally it does seem to be sort of limited, and it seems like there's to some extent the like not going into political action is deliberate and like I, I do see a lot of benefits from that but i just think something the space could do more on i think yeah you might, might be happy to know that i think that outside of kind of the bay area uh, like the, or the effective altruism community in kind of australia or uh, or continental europe or or, or or the uk as kind of it, it was significantly less techy like i'm not particularly techy and i guess uh 80 80, hours like only only partially is and I guess we kind of encourage people to go into policy careers quite a lot. We've had like a lot of episodes on, yeah, like what government policies we'd like to see changed and what kind of careers can, can you pursue there. But it's definitely true that, uh, I mean, the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area is like one of the big centers uh, for effective altruism. And, uh, and over there, there's definitely uh, some, some, yeah, some more skepticism about uh, policy change. Um, and I suppose it is like the, the nature of that city is to be pretty, pretty, uh, pretty tech heavy <laughs> and to be like, yeah, not, not, not diverse in, in the ways that we might want it to be. Yeah, that's definitely good. Yeah, and I think kind of diversifying outreach is definitely important, like just because like you need to be where the ability to affect change is and affecting change happens in lots of places. Have you, have you, I mean, I imagine the, the crypto community is, a, is another group that probably like doesn't have as much diversity as it, as it would like to have and uh, probably tries to do things to uh, you know, encourage a, a wider range of people to get involved. Are, are there any kind of lessons that have you learned from that that potentially... Uh, you know, we could benefit from. Yeah, we definitely try. Like we run our manual conference in a different continent every year. We yeah, have uh, kind of employees in uh, in at least ten different countries, and like we we ha- we have really explicitly worked try hard to kind of go into these places where not many other people have been going so far and kind of see what's up and uh, see how we can kind of interact with and you know, support existing local efforts there. I think one important uh, kind of piece of advice that I've learned is to just kind of know your limits. Like, realistically, like there are just kinds of talents that you're not going to find in developing countries much. And because uh, uh, many of the people that are talented would have just moved to like, the U.S. Or, or wherever else already. So, and also just in many cases, kind of, cultures are different and so you're not going to find kind of things that you like the same ex- the same extent in all parts of the world like crypto communities in many parts of asia kind of are legitimately just more money oriented and less idealism oriented than i would like and like there are definitely exceptions and we're delighted to work with uh, the exceptions but the kind of the general patterns exist as well yeah and i think just like uh, having a sort of diverse space of, that you outreach to is important. And just going to places in person is uh, a really good way of doing that. And uh, people sometimes think that going to conferences is a waste of time, but uh, in many cases, it's really not. Um, like, conferences are not about the conference, right? They're about the people that, that you meet there. So, uh, yeah, folks with an interesting uh, cryptocurrency, like, yeah, including you, have kind of been a, a big source of donations for, for projects in the effective altruism community and I guess the, the rationalist community as well. How do you think we might kind of encourage like, yeah, more crypto entrepreneurs or, or investors to kind of to make large effective altruism in, in inspired donations? I mean, I think just continuing to market the concepts as you have been doing is just great. Like I learned about effective altruism from somewhere. Um, <laughs> 
everyone who has learned about it learned about it from somewhere and it's usually the internet and like either the effective altruism specific websites or like a less progress way star codex or one of these yeah i mean it depends because like there's there's people within the crypto communities that care about these ideas like including myself and i definitely try to kind of promote them where i can and i we mentioned like we we brought uh, Stuart Brandt over to DEFCON last year, I and mean, we brought kind of Aubrey to um, EdCon to talk about life extension. And we've had workshops with um, AI safety people. So we've d definitely like tried doing that. But then on the other hand, like if the audience isn't receptive to it, then you're probably not going to get much out of it. So yeah, and I think it's just like a matter of the the communities should keep talking to each other. You've given quite a lot. Uh, I'm curious to know, like, how do you think about uh, your own philanthropy? And I guess, are there any uh, uh, places or causes that you would kind of encourage uh, listeners to, to potentially make donations to? So the ones that I've given money to, and one is the Against Malaria Foundation, the other is Give Directly, then and Aubrey is like sends like life extension stuff, and Miri are probably the big four. I and mean, there's like some other smaller ones. I mean, I've I guess contributed to the Radical Exchange Foundation too quite a bit, if that counts. Yeah, and I think it's just like just a matter of uh, figuring, like, like first of all, just like deciding that these are causes that you care about, uh, and, and then once you do, then like wanting to and uh, give money to these projects, and it definitely just kind of came very naturally to me because like it was just a no-brainer that there's an opportunity to spend these amounts of money to benefit a potentially a really large group of people. Otherwise, yeah, and it, it, it definitely depends on kind of each person. Like, yeah, I mean, I think like just having the kind of the arguments for why these things are good and kind of be out there and be and continue to be expressed is important. Is there kind of a, a process that you go through to, to kind of d decide where to donate or do you kind of have to make decisions fairly quickly just given like, all, yeah, all of your many other responsibilities? I think the biggest bottleneck for me is that as kind of more of an outsider, I have a hard time telling kind of, are these uh, projects legit or are they just kind of overexcited idealists that think they're right, but actually are kind of totally not right for really for kind of reasons that they're not appreciating. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even the crypto space kind of has a lot of this, right? Like there's a lot of people that really wants to do good and projects that are doing good, there's projects that just don't make sense. And then there's the scams and then there's things that are in the middle, like people who kind of know in the back of their minds that their project might be total junk, but they keep going because, hey, they're making a lot of money out of it. Yeah, so like when I go into, say, like the life extension space, for example, and I'm trying to figure out like, okay, there's these people, who do I donate to? Like, I just have a hard time telling, you know, who is doing real serious, like uh, super valuable work and who's a joker. And like, I just don't have the sort of internal cultural context in the space to be able to figure, th figure those kinds of things out very easily. And for, uh, say, him, even AI risk research as well. Like it's it's sometimes hard to tell, but then I mean, even like Miri has its uh, fair share of critics for kind of poverty reduction. That's one of those things that that is kind of a bit safer, but on the other hand, it's sort of lower risk, lower return. 
Do you think that the crypto community as a whole is kind of uh, too excited or not excited enough about philanthropy as a way to make a difference? I definitely say not excited enough. You think like like compared to the amount of like the, the the kind of windfalls that some people have made, they're like not not excited enough about like perhaps yeah get, getting like leverage on their time by like get, you know, giving away that money. Yeah, exactly. Like there's definitely just a lot of people that like have a lot of money and they're either content to just sit on it or they pour it into like various like, expensive things that aren't going to be that much to them. And like I'm like dude, you do realize you could pump this money in and have the kind of the knowledge that you personally were responsible for saving 250 lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's definitely something that appeals to me, but like maybe their psychology is different. I don't know. Do you think it's kind of possible to change the, the social rewards that people get in that community to kind of make it more like people get more kudos for, you know, donations that people view as effective and, and valuable rather than kind of, I don't know, the yacht or whatever, whatever people are spending their money on? I mean, we're defi- I've definitely tried. Like there's the, the low tech approach of just kind of talking about these things, um, which I've done and like, you've, uh, and it's had some impact, but there's also kind of in re- higher tech approaches that I'm interested in, like one thing that I tried to do is this idea of stickers, which is basically that if you have these decentralized applications, then uh, if you donate some amount of money to some charity, then you get a sticker and you can kind of proudly wear the sticker inside of these decentralized applications and it's like on the blockchain. So any of these applications can verify it. And that's something that you can kind of show that you care about the cause. Um, there is a platform, EPF, um, it's a kind of decentralized Twitter that did this for the Against Malaria Foundation. And it seemed to work pretty well. Like pretty much, like last time I checked, just about every PPF user had one of these uh, $25 anti-malaria badges, which was really cool. What's the name of that, sorry? PPF, P-E-E-P-E-T-H. Nice, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, things like that I'm excited about. I mean, there's also kind of other weird ideas like this charity through marginal price discrimination blog post that I made a couple of years ago, where I basically suggested this idea that like, if there are projects that are kind of contributing to public goods and they kind of get publicly recognized for it, or sorry, if there if there's people that kind of contribute to public goods and they can get publicly recognized for it, and then other projects can kind of give them discounts. And there's kind of economic reasoning for why giving people discounts for doing like good things is a kind of much higher leverage than just giving money to a project yourself. And so that's the sort of thing that would be interesting to sort of try out more. Yeah, but this is sort of walking back into this sort of mechanism design territory as well. Yeah, and there's like social things that you can do. There's these mechanism designing things that you can do. And I think the best mechanisms have both an incentive component and a social component to them. So we definitely want to see as kind of more experimentation too. Yeah, I, re- I read that uh, that blog post, uh, Charity Through Marginal Price Discrimination, which we'll uh, stick up a link to for people who want to uh, like fully understand it. I guess, yeah, the, the kind of intuition is that if you're a business and you give a, a discount to uh, some group of people who you want to kind of reward, uh, then on the one hand, you kind of lose revenue uh, from the, the the fact that you're charging less per product, but on the same on the hand, you're like compensated for by the fact that you'll sell more of them because they're cheaper. And so, in fact, like it doesn't cost you nearly as much in terms of revenue or profit uh, as as the benefit to the to the people who are getting the discount. 
Uh, I guess yeah, this is an example of like a general phenomenon that uh, I guess Robin Hansen wrote a blog post about this 10 years ago of just like, yeah, the effectiveness of like really incremental change. Like, yeah, if you're a business, just like reduce your prices a little bit. If uh, or, like, really, yeah, this is something like really small changes in your behavior on the margin cost very little, but might benefit other people a lot. Uh, now, so you get like a really big benefit to cost ratio, though it's like not clear uh, that the like total benefit you could create by, by making lots of these little changes is, is all that large. And actually like another another guest in a recent episode, uh, Paul Cristiano applied this to divestment uh, and pointed out that like, yeah, you, like divestment from uh, companies on the margin costs you practically nothing, but actually does reduce their access to capital. Like, uh, uh, well, at least like a bit compared to the negligible cost. And it's basically just the same phenomenon again. But I guess, yeah, in terms of the business kind of giving giving discounts on its products to particular groups and then like charging uh, the, everyone else um, a, a little bit more, it kind of feels like there's, a, there's like a bit of magic going on here. Is like, where are these extra resources coming from if, if the benefit to the, to the recipients is larger than the cost of the business? It kind of seems like to some extent, like there's a transfer from other businesses that are losing customers, maybe. Uh, is, is that where it's happening? In general, when you're operating in an economy that's not fully efficient, there's going, there's always going to be these kind of environments where, or at least contexts where on the margin, you can do something that costs you like one cent to benefit someone else one dollar. And like the reason why these opportunities exist is precisely because the economy is not perfectly efficient. I mean, so like one example of this, right, is um, like if you're an employer, then like you might, there's some wage like at which you would want to pay your employees if you're profit maximizing. But then if you push your wage like five cents higher, then you get like you get both some costs and some benefits. The costs are that you have to pay more. The benefits are that you have higher retention rates and like they're happier and less likely to steal from you and like a thousand little things. And the reason why a profit uh, maximizing employer would not push push higher is because like they only push to the point where the costs equal the benefits. But then if you're kind of profit uh, maximizing plus a bit altruistic, then you'd want to push a bit higher because like if if all of the different utility functions are continuous, then like the profit maximizing point like kind of versus good to other people is sort of at the top of a hill. And so if you push a bit to the right, like you're going way to, quite a bit to the right, but you're only kind of pushing your profit down a, a tiny amount at first. Yeah, and in general, like in not perfectly efficient economies, they're just is going to be lots of these tiny little opportunities to do things like that. Like basically almost every year in private market inefficiency has an associated sort of way to leverage that to do good uh, at a medium extent um, at a uh, sort of low cost. And so the idea behind these price discrimination things is basically that like, hey, let's use that inefficiency as a leverage point and we try to take this sort of ability to benefit someone else a dollar at a cost of a few cents to yourself and we sort of steer it in the direction of like hey let's use this to benefit charity projects so the really nice thing about this mechanism is that like it actually replicates quadratic voting in some way because if you look at the math then like the amount of money that you lose by sort of pushing your prices in one direction is quadratic in the extents to which you push the price because like at the beginning you're you're only losing a few opportunities but the opportunities you're losing are the ones that are not that valuable in the first place and then it goes up and then it goes up more so the costs are quadratic so they start off very tiny but the benefits are linear and so it kind of becomes sort of almost accidentally economically efficient in that way which is um, really cool yeah, and this is just 
an example of like the kinds of things that we could do if you just had the ability to kind of create more of sort of proofs of, of what economic activity that you did. And like, this is one of the things that blockchains might end up helping with. Yeah, speaking of uh, blog posts that you've uh, that you've written, uh, I saw you uh, quite recently. You wrote this uh, this great uh, piece about uh, free speech, which I thought had kind of an unusually nuanced view on what exactly is valuable about free speech and and, and how we should think about kind of private censorship uh, rather than government censorship in, in practice. Do you want to kind of lay out your your argument there? Sure. And so the basic argument is um, that I was um, arguing against people that say that free speech is purely a legal protection that applies only to governments and that they're like private entity is censoring whoever they want is like A-OK and it's totally just their policy and we should be neutral about it. And the main arguments that I have there is basically that like, first of all, there's a reason why we have these free speech norms. And the reason why we have these free speech norms most fundamentally is that if you want to create an environment where good ideas win, then you should, then you want to have an environment where you don't have these weird kind of side incentives that like really heavily penalize you for publishing certain kinds of um, ideas where those incentives like have nothing to do with the ideas underlying goodness. And so basically in governments kind of censoring is obviously one example of that, but we're increasingly living in a world where these private entities also have a huge amount of power over basically how we talk to each other and how we to each other gets presented. And if a private entity ends up censoring, then it in many cases ends up having a lot of the same kinds of costs that government censorship does. And so like basically we should be upset at them for exactly the same kinds of reasons. So, yeah, I mean, the example that I gave to start off is this uh, kind of Bitcoin um, subreddit moderator that started um, censoring all of the kind of pro-big block opinions that ended up leading to the Bitcoin community splitting in half. And had that been managed better, I think it could have easily led to an, an outcome that was more harmonious in a lot of ways. But then, I mean, I also started talking about how there's different kinds of kind of censorship and different kinds of things that are kind of borderline between being censorship and not being censorship. So for example, if you're running a conference, then a conference is inherently not a free speech medium because you have a limited number of slots and you have to give those slots to someone. If you're not giving five minutes of time to one person, you're giving five minutes of time to another person. And so like you just have to make editorial decisions and ultimately the people that come to a conference are coming because they want to sort of experience the editorial decisions made by some conference organizer because they don't want to just listen to kind of unfiltered random people. And so if conferences censor someone because they kind of have ideas that are genuinely bad, then that's like totally fine. That's just ex- them exercising exactly the editorial judgment they should be exercising. Though there are kind of things conferences could kind of could do that's uh, kind of um, harmful as well, like where uh, if they end up kind of banning people for saying things that are completely unrelated to like, the thing that they're actually talking about, for example, that could end up having uh, really negative consequences. And the other example I gave as uh, kind of delisting uh, coins from an exchange, if you think that those coins are scammy. And then there's the question of, is the exchange more like an open market where anything goes, or is the exchange more like 
an opinionated platform that's like basically saying like these are the coins that we want our viewers to see and care about. So I kind of uh, pretty aggressively kind of delete comments on my, on my Facebook page uh, that that I that I don't like, and I like block people on Twitter if I think their their responses to my tweets are bad. Um, where does where does kind of that, uh, do, do you approve of that or, or disapprove of that? I definitely totally approve of it. Interesting. And yeah. In the arguments, they are basically being that like. I mean, first of all, like not every space should be in every in anything goes space, and there's like there's room for spaces that optimize for like a certain kinds of discussion because people want the ability to kind of productively discuss certain kinds of things. And there's definitely posts that just don't add anything and really detract from the quality of a discussion. And I think those are definitely kind of totally fine to uh, remove. Like in the Ethereum case, I mean. For the Ethereum Reddit, moderation is kind of fairly, very liberal. But for the um, ETH Research Forum, we do kind of censor non-technical things pretty heavily. And the idea there is like, hey, this is specifically a research space. And like, that's the purpose of the space. And the purpose of the space isn't those other things. And we have these other spaces for those other things. So, yeah, I mean, I think spaces that are kind of opinionated to target a particular objective is something that's totally fine to have. Yeah. I guess my reasoning is kind of like the, the time and attention of my readers is a scarce resource and I don't want to like waste it with, with things that I don't think are valuable. Though I suppose you know, people might object, well, it's like you're just like preventing criticism of the things that you're writing and maybe you have bad judgment about what's what's valuable and what's not. But then I'm like, well, maybe they should just go read someone else's post then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, like the, the standard objection is that, oh, well, it's not a problem if like people, you know, strongly moderate the, the Ethereum Reddit because people could just go to a different a different Reddit uh, group if they if they don't like the moderation on that one. Yeah, kind of. What, yeah, what, why do you think that's not a good objection? Then? And basically, because I mean, there is a kind of sense in which the Ethereum Reddit has a kind of natural monopoly to it. Like it is Reddit to discuss Ethereum, and it's got the name, it's got those kind of network effects that was built up by people, many of whom were explicitly expecting a commitment to free speech. So, the, like uh, those sorts of things. Kind of add together and I think make the Ethereum Reddit into something that's more like a public space. Whereas if I made an, a Reddit called like r slash Vitalik's forum and I yeah, explained like these are things that I think this forum should be discussed and I censored it heavily, I think like much fewer people would end up having a problem with that. There's definitely value in private spaces. There's definitely value in public spaces as well. Yeah, I think that's a, maybe a distinction that I hadn't uh, really thought about uh, as much before that kind of if you create like, uh, you know, the, the, the effective altruism Reddit, and it's actually called the effective altruism Reddit, to some extent, you've like taken a scarce public resource away, um, which is this like the, the name that gives this legit, the, the sense of legitimacy in people's minds. And that maybe like gives you responsibilities that you wouldn't have if it was just like Rob's effective altruism discussion. Yeah, I think it helps to explain like, yeah, why, why people sometimes object to uh, yeah, mod- uh, intense moderation in some circumstances, but then they're totally fine with it in other cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll stick up, stick up a link to, to, to that blog post. I think it's uh, well worth potentially ha- having a read. I suppose just a slightly provocative question out of, out of left field is that kind of like a big thrust of your work is kind of encouraging decentralization and, and empowering individuals. And kind of, you know, I'm the kind of person who like who has like a positive sense about decentralization in general and likes markets and like people to be able to speak their mind and just say whatever they think. What do you think are the chances that kind of there's like something like fundamentally wrong about that worldview and that like, for example, like people are just kind of bad and like just empowering like people more broadly and like, yeah, decentralizing authority is uh, is, is harmful and that like maybe really the only way uh, things can work is if you 
like just kind of luck out and get have like some centralized authority and, and hope that you get the right right people in charge yeah i mean i think uh, those kinds of critiques are definitely worth worrying about i mean there's one uh, kind of aspect of the critique that i mentioned uh, already which is this uh, public good issue about having correct opinions and then there's uh, inequalities in uh, the level of expertise um, and uh, there's the issue of well we make these mechanisms that have this out of egalitarian flavor to them but there's also this lingering question do we want to kind of try harder to come up with mechanisms that explicitly try to kind of target opinions that look like expert opinions or or correct opinions more more than just aggregating the average and I mean there's obviously the downsides to uh, technocracy, but on the other hand, these things are definitely worth uh, really, t really taking seriously. Uh, so it's definitely something that uh, we're act actively thinking about. One thing I, I didn't ask earlier is kind of for people who want to get involved in this whole incentive design, uh, yeah, mechanism design, like yeah, crypto, uh, crypto economic space. Uh, like, how can well, like, what would be some good first steps for them? What what people might they be talking to, or what website should they visit? Hmm, I guess um, for, it depends on like what your interest in crypto is. Like, are you interested in being a researcher, being a developer, like being a user, like just holding and like doing things with coins, like participating in uh, quadratic votes, like being an enthusiast? Visiting a meetup, I think, is good because it also gets you in touch with the local community. And otherwise, like tryethereum.today is like a pretty good website that like directly pushes you to kind of the basics in terms of actually using the platform on the research side i mean there's eth research and then that's and the different threads on it and that's a kind of research forum that is kind of pretty accessible for people to start contributing fairly quickly um hackathons and participating in hackathons is like often a way a lot of people get started yeah I guess there's the uh, kind of radical exchange meetups and the radical exchange conference. Yeah. So on the radical exchange side, I think the meetups and often like I've, I've noticed in a lot of cases, they tend to be kind of sistered with the, with crypto meetups in different cases. And like makes sense because they're like, they're technically two different sets of ideas, but there's a lot of ways to use one to implement the other. And a lot of people who care about one care about the other. Yeah, so meetups is just kind of online materials. Yeah, and it, it just depends on sort of what kind of person you are and what kind of what aspects of like both of those spaces you want to be interested in. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, on an even lighter note, I recently published this blog post where I kind of recommended twenty seven products that I that I use and kind of suggest that other people might want to want to use and buy themselves. Uh, you mentioned that you kind of you had a reaction to one of them. I think was it was it the Air Miles one. I in, I've ended up kind of acquiring just a bunch of different optimization techniques over the course of my six years of uh, traveling way too much. In terms of like specific things, I like the donut. So I mean, I noticed that you had a power adapter that's one of these like universal like twelve dollar ones. I mean, the donut is like it, the company I think it's called Mojix, M O G I C S, and it's a bit more expensive. But the nice thing about it is that it also um, functions as a kind of multi-way splitter so you can kind of plug in a lot of different cables so if you're traveling with friends like if one person has them you can just like, plug everything in so that's really nice in terms of like bags um i travel with a 40 liter bag so which seems exactly the right size like it's still 
big enough to carry to, to carry stuff, but it's uh, kind of small enough that, that you have no problem push putting it in to carry on and uh, kind of even walking long distances with it. Yeah, and otherwise, I you know, got a laptop bag. Um, inside of my laptop bag, I also have um, a bunch of tea bags so I can have tea wherever I want. Yeah, so like a, a bunch of little things like that. Nice. All right. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get links from you for, for all of those products if people want to yeah, uh, travel, travel the Vitalik way. I, I feel like I, I have to travel all the time, which is why I put up a bunch of different travel recommendations or like, yeah, th- things I use that I, that I think makes it a little bit less painful. But I'm sure like the amount of flying I do is, is, is nothing on the amount that you have to suffer through. It's both uh, kind of challenging and rewarding in a lot of places to just be able to visit different people and have friends in all these different uh, places. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for everything uh, you're, you're doing to try to yeah develop Ethereum, uh, develop blockchain technology. I think yeah you have a fa- fantastic mentality to, uh, t- towards all this, and uh, given like everything that you've accomplished uh, so, so early, uh, you're also just impressively humble and, and impressively candid. And uh, um, and I really appreciate that you're just like so direct and candid that I can kind of just uh, take take a, take the things that you say as. Uh, as kind of trustworthy and like your, your, your honest impression of how things are. There's, I feel like there's, there's, there's no spin with you. I definitely try. Uh, my guest today has been Vitalik Buterin. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Vitalik. No, thanks. It was really good to be here. As always, there's lots of links to go and learn more in the show notes and associated blog post. And the natural next episode to listen to, if you haven't done so already, is episode 52, Professor Glenn Weil on Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Karen Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.